She with the grocery spot with the sweatpants looking all kinds of hot at a box of Captain Crunch in your hands. Said, now baby girl, that's my jam. You ain't the kind of girl that needs fancy things. You like staying up late, playing video games. Got a cherry ring pop that you're only blinging. You take me back like Nintendo, like when we were ten. Yo, our hands out the window wherever we go. You bring me back like Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 106, where we go back, back to, the, to the, past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by pressing up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B-A, start. Wait a second. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like anything from the Age of Apocalypse. No, we are finally, <laughs> we are completed with our Age of Apocalypse, our six-part Age of Apocalypse breakdown, which, uh, Went from episodes 100 to 105. You can get those in our archives, and Chris did wrap them up into a box set. Mm-hmm. But we are now moving on to other comics, and this week we're going to read Captain N, the Game Master, number one, from cover date May 1990. Cover price was $1.95 US, $2.50 Canadian, and the publisher is Valiant Comics, which is a comic company we've talked about a few times sort of got around them but i don't think we've ever read a valiant comic and in fact we are reading right. the first valiant comic today but <laughs> uh first let's talk about valiant comics the publisher now i'm just going to say up front much of the information about valiant and the bulk of quotes from folks involved in valiant through the years that you're going to hear in this episode were taken from an article one article written by ryan mcclelland for the website Two guys, one review.com, which I don't think exists in any current form, uh, titled The Rise, the Fall, and Resurrection of Valiant Comics. And that was posted February 7th, 2017. So uh, definitely all kudos to Ryan McClellan. We will post the link to that. It's archived in the, uh, somewhere in the show notes. And uh, you can read his article for much, much more information. But we'll give you as much as we can in uh, our podcast time allotted. So. Uh, it started Jim Shooter, former editor-in-chief at Marvel, attempted to purchase Marvel Entertainment with Stephen J. J. Masarski and a group of investors. Uh, they had the second highest bid to buy Marvel, but they didn't get it because it was the second highest. Uh, Ronald Perlman had the highest bid, and that's a whole other story. That's We'll talk about that some other time. Uh, you can find out more about Jim Shooter in general by listening to episode 71 of the Cosmic Treadmill in the archives when we do uh, star brand number one, but as we've said, it really is a Jim Shooter bio. So uh, Jim Shooter and Masarski instead formed Voyager Communications in 1989 with significant venture capital financing from a company called Triumph Capital. Valiant Comics was the comics producing imprint of Voyager Communications. Shooter first met Steve Masarski when Masarski wanted to put together a live action show featuring Marvel Comics characters. Uh, he was a legend in the music business. He was known for managing such groups as the Allman Brothers and came with that cachet. Uh, so he optioned the live-action rights for Marvel for $25,000 and hired Shooter to write the show for him. But then his two-year option ran out and the show never happened. So, Aww. oh well. <laughs> Twenty-five grand. Oh well. I wonder if I wonder if Marvel will ever try TV shows again. Oh, uh, I hope so. Maybe. Maybe we'll see. Maybe one of these days. Uh, in 1989, Valiant would open their offices in a fifth-floor loft in downtown Manhattan. 
The Valiant office in the early days had a small staff, which consisted of just about 10 folks uh, to start that production of Valiant Comics. They were apparently very shabby with space heaters and creaky floors. In fact, uh, Jim Shooter discovered that a rat, a rat, a literal rat, had, discovered, had delivered a litter of babies in the pocket of a sports jacket he'd left in the office overnight. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Valiant bought uh, for an undisclosed but admittedly very large sum of money the right to publish comics about several Nintendo properties. They included the Super Mario Brothers, Metroid, and The Legend of Zelda. Uh, Nintendo had a massive database of subscribers for their own magazine, that's Nintendo Power, and it was assumed that they would help to market these comics to their embedded fan base. Valiant would release its first comic book, Super Mario Bros. Special Edition No. 1, in early 1990, had a cover date of April of that year, uh, to find the marketing help they thought they would have from Nintendo not there. <laughs> but uh, And that's uh, the, the very comic book that we're about to read today. That's right, but first... We're going to tell you a little brief history of Nintendo and a little background of the characters. And before we do that, we have to give you an even briefer history of <laughs> video games. So, and believe me, this is a brief, brief history. There's yes. definitely podcasts and resources that could expand on this tremendously. But the highlights are the earliest example of a video game being from 1947. This was a cathode ray tube amusement device. Filed for a patent on January 25th, 1947 by Thomas T. Goldsmith Jr. and Essel Ray Mann issued that patent on December 14th, 1948. The number is 2455992. Basically, this game was a very crude version of the arcade rollerball classic Missile Command, which came out from Atari 1980. If you haven't seen it, go look at footage. In uh, 1958, American physicist William Higginbotham, I love that name, it's a great uh, name. Designed a game that used an oscilloscope to display the path of a simulated ball on a tennis court as if you were viewing it from the side or even above in a way. Uh, he called it Tennis for Two and used the game to entertain visitors to the Brookhaven National Library where Higginbotham was head of the instrumentation division. This game was essentially a very early version of Atari's Pong. Uh, they released an arcade version in 1972 and a home version in 1975 that had a huge impact on video game popularity. The commercial success of Pong led other companies to develop Pong clones of their own uh, in their own systems, and that basically spawned the video game industry. So many clones were produced that the market was flooded, which led to the video game crash of... Not 1983 yet, 1977. Yep, that's right. Now, the arcade era began in earnest with Space Invaders from Taito in 1978. This is a game where you moved a reticle left or right to shoot an ever-advancing army of aliens. Again, if you haven't seen it, there's footage. You got every footage, I'm I'm sure a lot of folks have seen this one. I would think so, but I I don't don't want to assume anything. I know know for some people the arcade (laughs) days are ancient history, so this is true. There are resources out there. Now, as video games came back into popularity, so too did home consoles. The big one uh, to have in the early 80s was the Atari 2600. That one debuted in 1977, however, it didn't really have many worthwhile games until 1982. Initially, the console was packaged with the player-versus-player tank game called Combat, but beginning in 1982, the 2600 would come with a ported version and a terribly ported version of (laughs) Pac-Man from Namco 1980. We call that the Flickr version, but I do remember that when that came out, people went nuts and it appeared under many trees uh, that that Christmas. Uh, Now, as Chris intimated, the arcade era ended with a crash in 1983 because 
You guessed it, so many cabinet arcade games had flooded the market that it could not support itself once again. Uh, home consoles were also on the ropes at the time, despite the introduction of more sophisticated units like the Intellivision in 1979 and ColecoVision in 1982, the Atari 2600 still ruled the roost, outpacing even Atari's own models that were meant to supplant it, uh, like the Atari 5200 in 1984 and the Atari 7800 in 1986, although it might have been a little too late for them at that point. Uh, by 1985, it looked like the video game craze was over, and no one would ever play video games again for the rest of human history. If not for Nintendo, they <laughs> came to the rescue here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about their history. Uh, they were founded as a playing card company in Kyoto, Japan, by Fusajiro Yama, Yamauchi. Yamauchi? Let me try that again. Yamauchi? Fusajiro Yamauchi. We apologize to Japan. Yes, uh, On September 23rd, 1889. Yeah. Now, these were known as Hanafuda cards, uh, playing cards with floral prints based on a set of 48 Portuguese ombre playing cards brought to Japan by Basque missionary Francis Xavier in the 16th century. The word Nintendo can be translated to leave luck to heaven or, alternative, or alternatively as the Temple of Free Hanafuda. In 1949, the business adopted the name Nintendo Karuda Co. Limited, uh, doing business as the Nintendo playing card company outside of Japan. In 1956, Hiroshi Yamauchi, grandson of Fuji, well, that first guy, got uh, visited. <laughs> he got me again. Uh, he visited the U.S. to talk to the United States Playing Card Company and found that the biggest playing card company in the world was using only a small office. Yamauchi's real, realization that this business had limited potential was a turning point. He then acquired the license to use Disney characters on playing cards in order to drive sales. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting point here. He saw this probably was a little shabby office with a guy answering a lot of phone calls and whatever. Sure. Uh, but at the same time, how much space do you need to broker playing cards is my other question. But anyway, uh, maybe... You do it maybe... out of the trunk of the car, right? Nah, yeah. I would th that's, yeah, I would really think that, but I guess I'm not thinking big enough. That's why I, didn't, I don't own a multi-million dollar playing card company. So uh, <laughs> in 1963, Yamauchi renamed Nintendo Playing Card Company Limited to Nintendo Company Limited. The company then began to experiment in other areas of business. They started up a taxi company, a chain of love hotels, which are hotels with hourly rates, mm -hmm. a television network, and a company that sold instant rice. Uh, none of these worked for various reasons, and Nintendo's stock plummeted. Nintendo began making toys in 1966 with something called Ultra Hand, which was like an extendable grasping plastic claw hand, sort of. You gotta see it to believe it. Uh, they had some success there, but Nintendo struggled to gain a foothold in an industry already dominated by giants like Japanese toy manufacturers Bandai and Tomy. Uh, they found the most success selling light gun-based shooting games to bowling alleys and nightclubs, so they kept walking down that road. Nintendo entered the video game industry when, in 1974, they acquired the rights to distribute the Magnavox Odyssey video game console in Japan. And then Nintendo began to produce its own hardware in 1977 with the color TV game home video game consoles. And these seem really complex. There were four versions of these consoles, uh, each introduced including variations of a single game. For example, color TV game six had six versions of light tennis. So like doubles, singles, doubles, invisible 
net, I would think. <laughs> you know what I mean? You ever see these systems yeah. like this? So, oh, yeah. Uh, it just seems like you're... So if you want all the games, you have to have all the four systems. What a, a, lot of, a lot of cables lying on the floor is what I'm imagining here, but uh, oh, there yeah. it is. Dad's tripping a lot. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, Shijiro Miyamoto was hired by Nintendo around this time. Uh, one of his first tasks was, des- to, was to design the casing for several of the color TV game consoles. Miyamoto went on to create, direct, and produce some of Nintendo's most famous video games and became one of the most recognizable figures in the entire video game industry. In 1979, Gunpei Yokoi, this is the fellow who developed the Ultra Hand back in 1966, he conceived the idea of a handheld video game while observing a fellow bullet train commuter who'd passed the time by interacting idly with a portable LCD calculator. In 1980, Nintendo would launch the Game & Watch. This is a line of handheld LCD games, eventually emulating popular arcade games of the time. The modern D-pad, the cross design, was developed in 1982 by Yokoi for a Donkey Kong version of the Game & Watch. Uh, the games were ports of the hardware, however, you could not switch games on the same device, so it was one game per device. Yeah. Uh, in 1990, I'm sorry, 1981, Nintendo introduced the arcade game Donkey Kong, about a mustachioed plumber overcoming obstacles to save a blonde woman from a giant ape. Mm. The game was released in North America on July 9th, 1981, 2,000 cabinets in all. By October that year, Donkey Kong was selling 4,000 units a month. And a year later, it sold sixty thousand machines. This isn't this isn't cartridges. No, yeah, <laughs> machines, arcade cabinets, full and, cabinets. And, yeah. uh, in North America alone, generating a hundred and eighty million dollars. Uh, it was a smash success for Nintendo, and is still considered one of the most popular and difficult video games of all time. You can ask Billy Mitchell about That's that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it, Steve it Weeb, all those. You know, <laughs> yeah, him too. <laughs> now it also introduced the game's protagonist. <laughs> Jumpman, who would be rebranded as Mario for a series of games about a pair of twin plumbers having psychedelic adventures in the sewer. That's right, you guys probably know those games, but uh, scrolling back from there, in 1983, Nintendo launched the family computer, colloquialized as Famicom, home video game console in Japan, alongside ports of its most popular arcade games. And then in 1985, a cosmetically reworked gray slab version of the system known as the Nintendo Entertainment System, or the NES, was launched in North America. This was packaged with a top-spinning peripheral called Robotic Operating Buddy, or ROB. The NES gained traction, and within a year, they were selling quite a bit. Uh, Only two games, Gyromite and Stackup, were ever made to work with ROB. By 1988, industry observers stated that NES's popularity had grown so quickly that the market for Nintendo cartridges was larger than that for all home computer software. Uh, Because every version of the NES package came with the game Super Mario Brothers, sometimes bundled on the same cartridge with another game, uh, depending. There was a Duck Hunt Super Mario, if you had the Zapper. Yeah, if you're the power pad came with a track meet came with one, the track, or... but but always Super Mario was the other game. Oh, yeah. for sure. For so sure. therefore, it, it's it's known as one of the best selling video games of all time. It's moved forty point two million units in this period in like nineteen eighty five to like ninety ish. You know, that's it. It just moved so many. Uh, Compute magazine reported in nineteen eighty nine that Nintendo had sold seven million NES systems in nineteen eighty eight alone. Almost as many as the number of Commodore 64 sold in its first five years. Uh, so they did very well, Chris, is the Absolutely. point here. They were moving, 
quite they a were few. ubiquitous, we, yes. We each had one. Uh, many mm-hmm. other people had one, neighbors and whatever. So obviously you have this, you got to have a, a fan club. So Nintendo Fun Club was a fan club marketed by Nintendo that was free to join. And its members received a free subscription to Nintendo Fun Club News. It was a newsletter that I think, believe was four pages. Started in 1987, the first four issues were delivered quarterly, starting in the winter of 1987, with the final three issues being bi-monthly. During the intermissions between rounds in the game Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, when Little Mac's trainer is giving him hints to help him defeat his opponent, opponent, one of the things he says is join the Nintendo Fun Club today, Mac. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In mid-1988, the Nintendo Fun Club news was discontinued after seven issues in favor of Nintendo Power, a traditional paid subscription magazine. The first issue, which was dated July-August 1988, spotlighted the game Super Mario Bros. 2. 3.6 million copies were published of this issue, with every uh, member of the Nintendo Fun Club receiving a free one. This magazine was essentially a catalog focusing on providing game strategies, tips, tricks, reviews, and providing uh, previews of upcoming games. The character Captain N first appeared in Nintendo Power magazine, created by a Nintendo staff member and a magazine editor named Randy Studdard. Now, we'll uh, let Randy himself tell it, because he wrote a uh, rambling letter to the now-defunct website Nintendo Player sometime around uh, 2011. Mm -hmm. And he says... I came from a mostly academic background, having taught junior high, high school, and university classes, with a BA in education and communications, with a double major of education and theater, and a minor in journalism from Northeastern Oklahoma State University, known for its extraordinary teachers program. I was hired the same day I applied, and I decided initially that I would be a game counselor since I'm openly friendly, talkative, and had worked some customer service before. Not knowing much about the company, this seemed fine to me. I knew that I was frankly overqualified for the job, and the salary was disappointed, disappointing. But I imagined that with my education, maturity, and experience, I would rise more quickly than the great throng of my peers. I, would demonst- I could demonstrate that I could make a, con- a significant contribution. This has always been my approach to any company I've ever worked for. It is the way I was raised. It is the American business value system. It has never worked once for me. <laughs> Nintendo would prove to be no exception. Although, in a way, it did. Sort of. So, Randy gets closer to the point when he Thankfully. Sa- continues to say, <laughs> not to the point yet, but closer to it. Uh, he's, he writes, I learned within the first few days that Nintendo was open to a new spokes character. Mario was iconic, and his innocence and good nature were very useful and beneficial at times in conveying part of a desired image but apparently lacked the technological and futuristic flash that Nintendo also wanted to convey. The scuttlebutt was that they wanted something along the lines of a superhero. Being a creative type with formal academic training and marketing, my mind's wheels began to crank. I worked on it at night at home. Within three weeks of my hire, I I had not only the character, but an ad hoc marketing campaign mapped out. It was at this time that Nintendo was to launch its record-breaking entry into the world of magazine publishing. Now, it's not Nintendo's custom to secure people actually trained in a given discipline to perform the task. So word went out to the rank and file that the search was on for anyone that could write real magazine articles. We're almost there. Uh, Randy continues. Those of us with an interest notified the appropriate personnel, and we were given a practice article. My efforts apparently impressed someone enough that I was given a, quote, position as editor on the magazine. 
As I've mentioned, within a few days of my hire, I had heard that Nintendo was open to the idea of a new spokes character to add a state-of-the-art to add a state-of-the-art pizzazz to their other mascots, something along the lines of a superhero. I polled my coworkers for information about the company, including history, attitudes, goals, desired image, etc., and I set about creating this character that night on my own time, on my own computer. Having an authoritative understanding of how superheroes are created and operate and live their lives, creating a superhero character for Nintendo was a task that was seemingly ideal for me. Unconsciously or subconsciously, I could make him the superhero that I always wanted to be. The whole point of the character was that he would be a reflection of the company. Therefore, it made sense to give him powers that would allow him to interact with video game characters. It was important, however, that he would originally be born of the real world. This allows the reader slash viewer a conduit through which to relate to the video game characters. Hence, the purpose for the fusing of man and video game microchips. This guy's like Magneto, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> he continues. I wonder, if, I wonder, if this, was this the pitch? Because this might explain might... a lot of what comes Holy later, I'll tell smokes. you what, but okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> Okay, so uh, our man stuttered continues here. (laughs) From here, it is just a natural step to, quote, actualizing video game characters. That is, bringing them to three-dimensional life from out of the television set or entering their domain. The whole point of that is to allow the company to promote any video game by having Captain Nintendo to have an adventure with the star of that video game. The consumer is introduced to this new video game via an adventure with the captain. Oh, so now... (sighs) Randy wraps up his pitch with every hero must have a villain. This was a little tricky. It must be someone who is a match for the hero, but someone that he is capable of beating. At the same time, I don't want their struggle to get in the way of the purpose, which was promoting the game du jour. It should be an entity with almost the same powers as the captain, but who interacts and even controls the bad guys from the video games. And then I hit on a bit of genius. Hey, from a marketing standpoint, it was. Sheer genius. The villain would be an actualized mother brain from a Metroid game that was caught in the explosion and fused with a few of the magic bioneural microchips. The giant cerebral cortex of mother brain could easily control the villains of other video games. Mother brain's programming is that of complete relentless domination, so the battle will be never-ending. So I wrote the origin story and a nine-page marketing campaign proposal. It wasn't about a boy and his freaking dog who gets sucked into their television. It was about a regular Joe who just happened to work as a game technician at Nintendo. And like the rest of this whole concept, there was a definite purposeful reason as to why I made him a regular Joe that worked as a game technician at Nintendo. Read the early issues that contain the two-part origin story. Listen, I knew this wasn't War and Peace or Tom Sawyer, but from a marketing perspective, This was It's a Wonderful Life, and every Saturday morning was Christmas. There were layers and dimensions to this marketing that worked together and fed each other. I wasn't trying to win Pulitzers. I was trying to sell video games. And I did. A whole lot of them. Whoa, and I want to say that is an edited version yes. of, of about the first five pages of a 10-page letter. Uh, we will get back to him later in the show, but uh, all that to say that Captain N's origin that he spoke about was told in, in Nintendo Power, issues number three and four, covers dated November, December, and January, February of 1988, respectively. Now, how many times do you think he uh, he practiced that in front of the mirror? 
What? That 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 spiel. <laughs> that whole thing. Uh, I would think probably quite a lot. Yeah, it definitely sounds like something one could orate for sure. Yes, he, he was wanting to be asked that question. <laughs> exactly. Oh. How funny you should ask is since how the beginning of that never started. Well, off the top of my head, yeah. uh, you have an hour. Yeah. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about. The TV show here. Uh, Nintendo decided to follow Studdard's ideas and create a Saturday morning cartoon series, opting neither to credit nor to compensate its creator. Deke Entertainment was the animation studio, and they changed various aspects of the original idea while keeping the main premise of the captain opposing Mother Brain as he interacted with a number of video game characters. Each episode's titles began with a live-action depiction of our hero, now teenager Kevin Keane, being sucked into video land through his television with his dog Duke and an NES gamepad and zapper. He didn't want that, but that's the way it went. No. Uh, in order to fulfill an ancient prophecy, Kevin is destined to become the hero Captain N, the Game Master, and to save video land from the evil forces led by Mother Brain from the floating world fortress called Metroid. There, he teams up with Princess Lana, the acting ruler of Video Land, with no direct connection to any particular video game. Also, Simon Belmont from Castlevania, Mega Man from Mega Man, and uh, Pit, otherwise known as Kid Icarus from Kid Icarus. That's right. Uh, later on, an anthropomorphic Game Boy joins the team. I wonder what they were trying to promote there. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know probably uh, calculators. Maybe. Uh, Mother Brains is accompanied by her own minions. We got the Eggplant Wizard from Kid Icarus, the Rotan King Hippo from Punch-Out, and also Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, and the Scheming Dr. Wily from Mega Man. Several other characters make recurring appearances on the TV show, including Donkey Kong, the Count from Castlevania, and Dr. Wright from Mega Man, both two doctors. Uh, Captain N, the Game Master, ran for three seasons for a total of 34 episodes. Sorry, I had to chuckle at that, but... <laughs> debuting September 9th, 1989, concluding September 14th, 1991. It sometimes shared an hour-long block with The Adventures of Super Mario Bros. 3, and it was syndicated as Captain N and the Video Game Masters like two years after it went off the air. Uh, the Nintendo Comics System was a series of comic books published by Valiant Comics in 1990 and 1991 as part of their licensing deal. These comics featured characters from their video games and cartoons based on them, and one of those cartoons was Captain N, the Game Master, and we're going to read the first issue right now. Finally! Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Uh, yeah, a lot of information there, but we're going to hop right in. We got the first story is uh, Welcome to Video Land by George Caragon, Bob Layton, Ken Lopez, Art Nichols, John... Sebalero, I'm gonna Sebalero. Sure. Uh, this is the 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 uh, the credits are just in the gutter before every yeah. story, just arranged the way I just read them. So we think George Caragone wrote it. Pretty sure about that, and almost positive Bob Layton must have penciled it. Uh, Art Nichols probably inked the story. Ken Lopez most likely lettered it, and then by process of elimination, we think. <laughs> That John Sebalero colored this, maybe every story in this issue, because that's the only consistent thing is this kind of watercolory coloring, right? Yeah, uh, I really, yeah. th we really have no idea. Uh, and Bob Layton may have been the ad hoc editor of this issue, although, as we'll hear lately, more than likely it was an uncredited Jim Shooter. 
Now, before we get into the story, let's meet George Carragon, or Carragoni, <laughs> however we're going to say knows? that. I don't know. <laughs> George. Uh, he was born September 16th, 1965, in San Antonio, Texas. His career in comics began when he sent an unsolicited submission to Marvel Comics in 1984. Uh, we don't know what that was. Uh, it may have been unpublished. Uh, he trained under the guidance of Marvel's editor-in-chief, Jim Shooter. He began writing Top Dog and Masters of the Universe for Marvel's Star Comics imprint, which targeted the younger uh, kids out there. Uh, his big break, uh, if you call it that, is writing Star Brand Number 10, November 1987 cover date with art by Mark Bagley. In 1988, after hearing that Jim Shooter was forming Valiant Comics, Carragon drove down from California to New York and, unannounced, knocked on Shooter's door to offer his services. As you can tell, Jim Shooter accepted... And, you know, hey, he wrote the first story in this very comic that they published. So uh, this one right here. Yeah, he, he, got a, he got a little leg up, so it must have worked. Now on to someone else a little more known to uh, all of us, I think, Bob Layton, born September 25th, 1953 in Indiana. He says he learned to read at age four because his older sister Sue became bored with reading the same comic to him about 50 times. It was a showcase featuring Challengers of the Unknown. Bob was one of the first, one of the early mail order comics dealers. Uh, we can infer through this he was involved in the comic zine scene, which is where the only place you really could uh, advertise at the time, very early on in the in the sixties, uh, for selling comics. Selling comics through the mail, Bob met Roger Stern in nineteen seventy three, while the latter was working for a radio station in Indianapolis. Leighton and Stern began publishing a fanzine called CPL. This stood for Contemporary Pictorial Literature out of Bob's pictorial literature out of Bob's apartment. Uh, Stern remembers CPL started out as Bob's sale catalog. Bob was drawing the covers and including little reviews written by some of his customers. By issue number five, it turned into a small zine with a catalog insert, and I started writing short articles for it. I eventually became editor of sorts. CPL rapidly became popular fan publica publication and led to the two forming an alliance with Charlton Comics, to produce and publish Charlton Bullseye magazine. This was a house fanzine published by Charlton, which was a thing at the time in the 70s for all the publishers. You can check out Weird Comics History Episodes 7 and 8, the history of Charlton Comics, for more information about these fanzines and about Charlton Comics as well. Certainly. Uh, Charlton gave Leighton and Stern access to unpublished material from their vaults by the likes of Steve Ditko, Jeff Jones, and a host of others. That's according to a 2005 interview with Leighton on the defunct JasmaOnline.com. Working with Charlton, and specifically their production manager, Bill Pearson, led to an apprenticeship with legendary EC Comics penciler and the creator of the Thunder Agents, Wally Wood. This led to more work from Charlton and eventually Marvel and DC. All the while, he remained in Indianapolis, uh, which is uh, no small feat in those days. Right. People they, usually, if you wanted to work in comics, you got to be in the city. Come to New York, buddy. You know, that's about mm -hmm. it. <laughs> now, one of Bob's duties as an assistant to Wood was to deliver pages from his office in Connecticut to New York City. Bob recalls, one day I was in the Marvel offices handing in Woody's pages to the production department, so I used the opportunity to show my samples around while I had my foot in the door. When I passed the art director's office, I heard John Romita on the phone, frantically trying to find someone to ink a desperately late issue of Iron Man by George Tusca. Like an idiot, I stuck my head in his doorway and said I could get the job done in the four or five days that was left on the schedule. It was an utter fabrication, but I really wanted to work for Marvel Comics. Johnny gave me the pages and said, show me what you can do, kiddo. 
So then Leighton got Dick Giordano and other members of Continuity Associates' crusty Bunkers team of inkers to help him finish the job. A month later, Leighton received a package containing an entire issue of pencils on the champions and discovered that he was the new regular inker on the book. So for inking that he didn't do, he got a, a steady gig at Marvel. Hey. <laughs> He's not the first guy, though, I'll tell you what. Uh, Leighton's first, albeit uncredited, work for Marvel Comics was inking a single page in the Marvel UK title The Avengers and the Savage Sword of Conan, number 135, with an April 1976 cover date. Bob says he worked for Marvel for about a year and then signed an exclusive one-year contract with DC after they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. Bob began work for DC Comics in early 1977 taking up regular inking duties on All-Star Comics, beginning with number 66, had a May-June cover date, as well as inking multiple issues of Secret Society of Supervillains, DC Superstars, and DC Special. He inked the first issue of David Michelini's Star Hunters, November-December cover date, uh, published by Marvel, and after a number of shorter inking jobs, moved back to Marvel in 1978. Back at Marvel, Bob reunited with Michelini and became regular creative partners began their collaboration on Iron Man with number 116, November 1978, cover date. They established Tony Stark's alcoholism with the story Demon in a Bottle and introduced several supporting characters, including Stark's bodyguard girlfriend Bethany Cabe, his personal pilot and confidant James Rhodes, and rival industrialist Justin Hammer, and many of Iron Man's specialized armors, which became a big part of several big storylines later on. Uh, some listeners may recognize a lot of those concepts from the Iron Man movies. That pretty much is the core of a lot of it. Uh, but not Chris. You won't recognize them at all from those movies, I don't think. But that's okay. They made, they made Iron Man movies? <laughs> never but never you mind. It's just it's, oh, okay. to stay with the comics. Okay. Now, the two would collaborate on Iron Man until number 154, and then return for a second run from issues 215 through 250. That's February 1987 through December 1989 cover dates. Leighton continued to ink and work on covers for such titles as The Incredible Hulk, Captain America, Power Man, Iron Fist, and The Micronauts. In September 1982, he launched one of Marvel's first limited series, writing and drawing the four-issue Hercules, Prince of Power. Its success success spawned a four-issue sequel in 1984 and the 1988 graphic novel Full Circle. Uh, right around now, Bob Layton would have designed the uh, Secret Wars toy, toy line for Marvel, which would result, of course, in the 1985 Secret Wars event, though he didn't work on the comics. In February 1986, Layton revived the original five X-Men characters in the series X-Factor, which he wrote when Jackson Geist drew. Layton would write the first five issues before handing it over to uh, Louise Simonson. Bob Layton was one of the chief architects of the Valiant Universe, along with Jim Shooter, Barry Windsor-Smith, Stephen J. Mazarski, and John Hartz. He co-created a number of the core characters, including Exo Manowar, and he would later become the editor-in-chief and senior vice president. And uh, we'll we'll get all to all that uh, when we talk more about Valiant later on in the episode. Yeah, we're not going to do a wrap-up on uh, Bob Layton himself, but he figures in very prominently uh, to the later stuff going on in Valiant. So. Uh, the cover of this thing, by the way, is yellow and features most of the main characters in the story. And not much more to say about it there. Uh, a banner at the <laughs> bottom indicates this is part of the Nintendo comic system. Okie dokie, we are ready. Our opening panel shows some sca- scantily clad women holding a scepter watching four video screens. This is Princess Lana. 
On these screens, various scenes of aggression unfold. The captions tell us what's happening. Welcome to Video World. Here, Kid Icarus flies against the forces of the underworld. Here, Little Mac punches out his opponents on the way on his way to the title. Here, Space Hunter Samus Aran battles the hordes of Metroid. The games shown here are Kid Icarus from 1987, a 2D side-scroller where a Cupid-looking guy hops around and shoots arrows at bad representations of Greek and Roman mythology. Also, there's a wizard made out of an eggplant. Sure. It's one of those games that starts off really hard and gets easier as you go. It's it really very does. strange. Well, because yeah. you, you collect all the uh, power-ups, and by the end, yep. you're just invincible. But that... that, that uh... That theme song. I'll be on my deathbed remembering that thing. Of course, yep. Uh, Punch Out was a port of an arcade boxing game initially released in North America in 1987 as Mike Tyson's Punch Out, featuring Tyson as the final contender. That license ran out in 1991, and Tyson was replaced with the fictional Mr. Dream, who functioned exactly the same way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just a palette swap. Uh, and Metroid, 1986. It's a sci-fi adventure puzzle game where the player is Samus Aran, hunting down the Metroid virus that claimed the lives of a maze-like space station. Back to the story, we see Mother Brain, uh, sort of a brain in a jar, with a... <laughs> <laughs> with Mick Jagger's face stretched across it. Pretty much, yeah. It's the perfect way to say it. <laughs> oh, now this would be the uh, big bad of the series. Yeah, Captain reads, Once, there was a balance to all things in Videoland. For each world, there was a hero, and for each hero, an arch-villain. Oh, I'm still laughing at that. Um, <laughs> now, I think <laughs> I think that after the Tetris Revolution, uh, when Mario Trotsky and Luigi Stalin were in power. Oh, right, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and pr- Princess, uh, you know... Uh, Peach. I can't think of a, yeah, peach scoff, yeah. (laughs) Um, Now, (laughs) Mother Brain is watching four video screens of her own, each with one of her villainous minions. Here we see Donkey Kong, the Eggplant Wizard, King Hippo, and Uranus, Lord of the Sky. Mother Brain changed that by uniting the forces of evil on all worlds to form a single deadly alliance that nothing could stop. On that day, the League of Darkness was born. This really sounds like a group organized in a mall food court, you know, around somewhere near the Orange Julius kiosk or something. For sure, yeah. They all got their leather, you know, chain wallets and, you know, their (laughs) hair over their eyes. We're going to be the League of Darkness. Uh, (laughs) So now the same underdressed lady, that's Princess Lana from the first panel, and Kid Icarus, Pitt himself, but they will be calling him Kid Icarus throughout the entire book. Yes. (laughs) Uh, They stand near some projector, which has created a portal through which we see the upper window of a home. Now, incidentally, Kid Icarus is almost certainly named for the legend of Icarus, a Greek myth in which Daedalus fashioned wings of uh, feathers and wax for himself and his son Icarus. And though he cautioned his son not to fly too closely to the sun, Icarus went just as high as he could, and his wings melted off, and he fell to the ground and died. Yeah, that little cautionary tale not to use wings made of wax. Punishment Uh, fits the crime. That's right. Uh, (laughs) Caption reads, Mother Brain had tipped the balance of power. A champion was needed to unite the forces of light. The ultimate warp zone found him in Northridge, California. And this is a real neighborhood in the county of Los Angeles. That's right. I was kind of surprised by that. Yeah. Right. Uh, next is what we might call typical 90s cartoon white kid in his bedroom. Uh, <laughs> playing Nintendo, his faithful dog next to him, like, 
handing him a remote control. I don't know. There's something in his mouth. I'm not sure what he's doing there. Yeah. Now, <laughs> the boy here, this is Kevin, and he's the all-American boy. He's even wearing a red and white Leatherman's, Letterman's jacket from his school. That's how you can tell he's American. Yep. Uh, Kevin Keen, the hottest Nintendo player on the face of the earth. <laughs> And I, and I hear he can hold his own on Mars, too. Probably. I bet he could, yeah. <laughs> then, you know, uh, we mentioned it earlier, Kevin gets sucked into the television. Uh, and this is a you know pretty good representation of the opening scene on the television show. Yeah. Kevin alone had the knowledge of the video game world needed to defeat Mother Brain. Kevin would no longer be just another high school kid. He was now... A high school dropout, right? Effective. I mean, Effectively, when, when yeah. are you coming back to class, you know, while you're out there <laughs> fighting Metroid, you, you know, the clock is ticking. Captain N, the Game Master. Now, this is actually expressed as the official series logo. Uh, now, the whole group, goofy group is smiling and running towards the reader, shooting uh, laser weapons at us. I, it seems a little aggressive, like, hey, right? buddy, calm down, dude. You know, I thought we were friends. Caption reads, welcome to Videoland, Kevin where the games are real and the fate of the universe is in your hands. Now you're playing with power. Trademark. <laughs> have fun. Remember not to destroy reality. Yeah, have fun. Storm in the castle. Yeah. <laughs> we go to the next chapter, The Fruit and Vegetable War, by Brian D. Lays, Mike Chen, P. Zorito, Jade, and John Ceballero. Uh, now, we think Brian D. Lays wrote this one. Uh, Mike Chen did the penciling, we think. Uh, it was inked by P. Zorito, which is actually a pseudonym for Vince Coletta, uh, you know, long-time anchor. Sure. And uh, Jade did the lettering by uh, process of elimination, we suppose. That's right. I, we, I'm pretty sure Ceballero did the coloring. So I uh, did a lot of research on Brian D. Lays. We turned out that he is a person in the world who existed and still may exist. Hey. And he contributed to two Legend of Zelda comics after this one. That's pretty much all I can definitively say about this guy. They fit my... that on a tombstone. Hey, I hope that something, <laughs> you know, I hope the Legend of Zelda comics, uh, you know, got him some cachet. So, uh, but Mike Chen, we know a little bit more about him. He was born March 27th, 1955. He attended the Kubert School from, of Art from 1978 to 81, and after, gra after graduating from Towson State University in 1975. His first uh, recorded professional work was in the Hero Heroes World catalog for 1979, and then he got a full story in Sergeant Rock number 367 in August 1982 cover date, which is a series edited by Joe Kubert at the time. Huh, I wonder if that had anything to do. Uh, maybe it did. Uh, huh. Mike penciled all four issues of Starriers, a toy license from Tomy for Marvel Comics in 1984, and he'd also draw Atari Force number 15 through 17, March through May 1985 cover dates for DC Comics. And then later, Mike drew all four issues of The Mask, that's Mobile Armored Strike Command miniseries for DC Comics, that ran from December 1985 to March 1986 cover dates. This guy, he draws a lot of licensed stuff, you know that? Yeah, let's, let's hammer that point home here. Mike uh, drew Robotech, the Mo Macro Saga, issues 15 through 34. That was November 1986 through February 1989 for Comico. He then drew 20 issues of The Elementals, uh, March 1989 through October 1991, plus The Elementals Sex Special, <laughs> written by Bill Willingham, also published by Comico. And sometimes sandwiched in between here, he drew this story in Captain N, the Game Master number one. Hey. 
Yeah, currently he's an academic supervisor at the Kubert School of Art. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Start our story here. Kid Icarus and Kevin are high in the sky. Icarus under the power of his own wings, uh, Kevin using some mechanical wings that sputter and cough as he flies. They're overlooking a series of islands in the sky, uh, the largest of which has two giant horns of plenty turned on its center. Kid Icarus says, There it is, Captain Ed! Straight ahead! Cornucopia! The fabled island of plenty! It's one of the most beautiful, peaceful places in all Mount Olympus! Glad to hear it, Kid Icarus. I just hope these mechanical wings hold out till we get there. I swear, this is the last time I fly tourist class. Why, is there some kind of public transportation for the residents of Mount Olympus? I mean, you, you definitely should have taken that if there's a, right? tr- a subway or something. I don't know what, how it would Even work. if there's a line, it's safer. <laughs> yeah. Do it, you know, take the bus. Uh, <laughs> turning, during their descent to the island, Kid Icarus explains that they're going to need food to fight the Legion of Darkness, and Cornucopia has plenty of it. Wait, 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 wait. I thought we were fighting the League of Darkness. Ah, League, Legion, what's the difference? You know, whatever. Who's, who's editing this? While still While still airborne, Kevin and the kid are attached by are attacked by musket-wielding Bartlett pears with bat wings. Great Zeus! Those pterodactyls! They're air force they're the air force around here! Look out! They're firing grape shot at us! Kid Icarus is hit by some kind of purple goop. Uh, we're going to guess and hope that it's made from grass. <laughs> yeah, really. Kevin goes, Kid! The, the parodactyls snatch Kid Icarus <laughs> and take off, and Kevin tries to pursue them. Too late! They got him! Maybe if I fire a warning shot with the zapper, TM, it'll scare them off! Before he can fire, however, another parodactyl sneaks up behind Kevin and detaches him from his mechanical w- wings. He plummets to the ground, but before he goes splat, uses the D-pad controller on his belt to kind of shunt over uh, to the apple tree, which is better for some reason. Sure. Yeah, and then he makes like this, like really like like dark-haired Zach Morris face, where he's stroking his chin here. Yeah. And uh, he says, "Now I know how Isaac Newton felt." Uh, actually, Isaac Newton was hit on the head by an apple, which made him conceive of gravity, so he would know how the apple felt, not Isaac. Ah. Just to be, to be literal now, just to be, you know. <laughs> uh, now, Kevin is approached by an army of anthropomorphic fruits. Uh, we have an, an orange, a banana, a watermelon. Uh, we're not using any euphemisms here. Right? It is a melon in a Mongolian war uh, costume. He starts screaming. Yeah, it's Attila the Honeydew, and he says... Speech, danger! Why you blocked the path of Attila the Honeydew, general of the armies of Rutopia? Well, you see, I just kind of dropped in. My name's Kevin Keane, but here in Video Land, they call me Captain N. Just introduce yourself as Captain N, man. You're just confusing things. Right? You don't need to give your idea. <clears throat> really? Yeah, plus, yeah, you're just giving your alter ego away. Mm. Uh, Attila says, Captain N, I did not know. This is indeed an honor. And even if in this far corner of video land, we have heard of your heroic deeds, you must have come here to help us. Far corner of video land? I mean, uh-huh. th- this is Mount Olympus, is it not? Yeah. I mean, this is where all the omni- omniscient gods hang out. I don't really understand. Like, why is this so remote all of a sudden? This ain't like a corner. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Now, the next panel depicts a bunch of anthropomorphic vegetables grabbing a lot of reluctant anthropomorphic tomatoes. We'll just let the melon explain it. We are at war with the pernicious produce of Vegetania, 
Last week, they raided Fruitopia and took prisoner our beloved tomatoes. We have sworn to make salad of them. But why would they take the tomatoes? They insist that tomatoes are vegetables, and vegetables belong in vegetania. Isn't that the biggest crock of compost you've ever heard? Yep. So, uh, there's your setting. Uh, anthropomorphic vegetables versus anthropomorphic fruits over tomatoes. Now, Kevin, he's already of the belief that tomatoes are fruits, which is a uh, you know good belief to have since it is the correct one. Well, now my grandmother always. Oh, never mind. I'm not going to argue with you over it. I heard there's vegetables in every Chef Boyardee can. Right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's, just, it's the wheat. Uh, meanwhile, in Vegetania, Colonel Corn brings the captured Kid Icarus before a jack-o'-lantern wearing a purple cape and a laurel wreath on his head, and his name is. Pump King Caesar. No, no, it's just King Pumpkin. Uh, they were really under some tough deadlines when they wrote this, apparently. It took us like two seconds to come up with. Right? <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, now, uh, King Pumpkin recognizes Kid Icarus and demands that Colonel Corn release him at once. He asks Kid Icarus for assistance against Fruitopia, and Kid Icarus agrees. Uh, Kid Icarus leaves, ready to do battle, and at just that instant, the eggplant wizard appears. King Pumpkin goes, oh, it's you. <laughs> eggplant Wizard says, yes, sire, the Eggplant Wizard, your trusted advisor. Uh, might I appeal to your wisdom? Speak, friend, to all vegetables. I know that Captain Ed has joined with the fruits to oppose us. You must send Kid Icarus into battle against him. The Eggplant Wizard does not have a good poker face. He's like super grinning and like <laughs> wringing his hands. And he's, by the way, your ripeness, you should get a new toga. The old one is making you look rather seedy. Seedy, get it? <laughs> is, he, is he trying to get on this guy's good side or not? Don't break the king's balls over here. Yeah. Let it go. Uh, now, soon in Plentyopolis, home of the Cornucopian Farmers, giant anthropomorphic fruits and vegetables are fighting and destroying the city while the human farmers run in panic. Wait, so this place has human farmers? Yeah. What, what do they farm? <laughs> the, the vegetables with eyes, I guess? <laughs> they're farming, they, they, they're, if they're farming the, the vegetables that have formed two separate governments... Why? Could they farm themselves, you would think? And then if they are farming some other, like, faceless fruits and vegetables for eating, then would they sit around eating coleslaw while the citizens of Vegetati and Fruitopia just watch in horror, you know, while like, their cousins are being eaten? Yeah. Maybe, maybe he's like, maybe they're peanut farmers. I, I mean, know. when we first see this, I, you know, I assume there were no humans. Yeah. Right on this in this place, but here we go. The humans got to be there too. So right, this, is, this is turning into uh, Princess Tomato in the in the Salad Kingdom, which was a Nintendo <laughs> game that they didn't That's take right. advantage of for this issue. Uh, now on the on a bluff overlooking Plentyopolis, Attila the Honeydew. I, I'm going to say that again. Attila the Honeydew watches <laughs> the chaos through some binoculars. How goes the battle, Corporal Kiwi? Corporal Kiwi goes, Not too well, General. The enemy sunk two of our banana boats on the Sea of Ambrosia. We've run out of cherry bombs, uh, and our strawberries are in a jam. Uh, sea of Ambrosia? I mean, I thought this was on Mount Olympus. Uh, more, more of a lake of Ambrosia. Oh, all right, fair. Yeah. So Kevin shows up with his zapper, and he's able to scare some of the vegetables off. When a Fruitopian lieutenant commends Kevin on his work, Kevin questions it. Gosh, Lieutenant Lime, I hope I'm doing the right thing. 
I thought this was just another adventure, but we sure are doing a lot of damage. Maybe I... And then Kid Icarus shows up and fires an arrow in Kevin's butt. Yow! Sorry, Captain, but it's for your own good. That arrow carries the chickenpox vaccine. <laughs> Actually, it was an arrow of itchiness, and now Kevin is scratching everywhere. He tries to reason with Kid Icarus. Kid, you're fighting on the wrong side. But I'm fighting to protect the poor tomatoes. They belong with the vegetables. Kid, please. If I really am your hero, trust me. Believe me, tomatoes are really fruit. I learned it in school. Yeah, the school was run by Chiquita Bananas and Del Monte Fruit Cups, so they got to be correct, right? <laughs> uh, Kid Icarus says, Well, we really didn't study tomatoes in Olympian schools, but the vegetarians seem so sure. Aren't the vegetarians Olympians too? Yeah. Uh, are we the only ones that remember that this is actually happening on Mount Olympus? I mean, that was literally the opening to the whole story, right? He said, yeah. this is the nicest place in Mount Olympus, you know? Yeah. Uh, so Kid Icarus and Kevin descend on the fruits and vegetables who have drawn battle lines, uh, which are not really exact either. I see some bananas among the lettuce there, you know, but whatever. <laughs> King Pumpkin goes, we have it on the best authority that tomatoes are vegetables. Yeah, what authority? Why, the eggplant wizard says it's so. The eggplant wizard? That's to you and your wizard, Pumpkin Puss. Everyone knows tomatoes are fruits. So, uh... This uh, disagreement must continue as well. Uh, now, Kevin and Kid Icarus uh, wonder why the eggplant wizard would want to subvert this plant-based society. I mean, Kid Icarus only made a big deal about Cornucopia being integral to their fight against the League of Darkness, but that couldn't be a good enough reason. No, the real reason is eggplant wizard needs the whole thing for a big distraction. Hey, uh, back in Fruitopia, the eggplant wizard is in, is in an empty museum standing before a golden statue of an anthropomorphic four-armed pineapple. It has weapons in each hand and a red gem in its forehead. Eggplant wizard says, My plan has succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. I am in the legendary temple of fruit, and there, in the statue's forehead, glows the fabled royal raspberry, and the guards are busy fighting in the war. While the tubby wizard clambers up the face of the pineapple statue, he says aloud to no one that Mother Brain sent him initially to disrupt the food supply from Cornucopia, uh, as you know we might have expected. Uh, once there, though, however, Eggplant Wizard learned about the royal raspberry with which he can control all of the fruits. So does he have some secret gem to control the vegetables, or just his uh, smooth, charismatic attitude? They never say. I guess they just right? like, they just like the cut of his. Yeah. He is a vegetable, so I guess they figured he was like maybe he's somebody's cousin twice yeah. removed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, today, the veggies and fruits. Tomorrow, trees, flowers, grass, even fungus. Soon I'll dominate all plant life. Boy, wait till the yuppies see what I charge for a watercress sandwich. Well, watercress is essentially a type of lettuce, so at, I don't know, two bucks? I, how much more could it be, really? I mean, right. it's, it's all on the bread, pretty much. Uh, mm -hmm. But then, from behind the eggplant wizard... Not so fast, eggplant wizard! No, not you! Not now! Not when my plans are so close to fruition! Even now we gotta do a pun? I mean, you're getting busted I mean, here. I, I, mean, I mean, I love puns, but come on, dude. It's, this is a very pun-heavy story here. Big time. Uh, now, back in Plentyopolis, King Pumpkin and Attila the Honeydew are still squabbling. Uh, Kevin and Kid Icarus teleport into the middle of things, Eleport Wizard in their grasp. 
they teleported? How? Look, just stop asking questions already. Okay? Well, there's no answers. <laughs> Kevin pronounces, proclaims, Hold your horseradishes! The war is over! It's all this rotten eggplant's fault! And, grinning disgustingly again, Eggplant Wizard comes clean. Though I told a little fib. The truth is, tomatoes are fruit. And then, in our dramatic climax, their fruits and vegetables shake hands and uh, go to their respective homes. Like, that's it. Seriously. Uh, Turn the page before we have to tell more fruit and vegetable puns, please. That was it, yeah. So we go right to the next story, a real quick one, called Every Dog Has His Day. This is by Brian D. Lays, Rodney Ramos, Art Nichols, Don McKinnon, and John Sabalero. We think Brian Lays did the writing again, Rodney Ramos penciled it, and then almost by process of elimination, Art Nichols <laughs> inked, Don McKinnon probably lettered, we think maybe Sebolero would have done the coloring. Uh, now, Rodney Ramos was born in New York, born and raised in New York City, got his start contributing to the official handbook of the Marvel Universe Deluxe Edition, number 17, had a cover date of August 1987. He drew Star Brand number 15 and The Amazing Spider-Man number 305, both cover dated September 1988. He drew Cyforce number 27 to 32, that was January through June 1989 cover dates, written by Howard Mackey, and after penciling several issues of Conan the Barbarian, what do you know? He drew this story in this very comic book. Indeed, our story begins in the secret lair of Uranos, Lord of the Sky. Uh, Uranos is a fat bearded guy in a red toga. He's talking to Mother Brain, using hologra- being holographically projected there. An army of skeleton soldiers lines Uranos' throne room. Yes, he says, I tell you, Mother Brain, we cannot fail. I have learned that Captain N, Kid Icarus, and Princess Lana have gone to the Palace of Power and have left only one guard to protect the treasure. Mother Brain says, And you think, Uranos, that your skeleton men can pull off a reed? My skeleton warriors fear nothing. They cannot fail. You get the feeling that this guy says things cannot fail a whole lot. Yeah, and I think there might be some failures in there. <laughs> On but, the way. <laughs> uh, Mother Brain's very pleased with this development. She laughs, says, ha, 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 ha. It's evil. It's wicked. I like it. Send your warriors. At last, the palace of power will be ours. And so, that evening, some skeleton soldiers put out into a sky boat and uh, paddle over to the Palace of Power, which is a, really a pretty cool concept. I like that, yeah. There's a, yeah. a flying boat with that. It's something about it, I thought. Uh, they rush into the palace, but the skeleton warriors are turned back by something that shocks them. They turn around, terrified, and scramble over each other to get away, and we can see a shadow of a snarling beast against the far wall. As skeleton soldiers disperse, Kevin, Lana, and the kid come strolling through a portal and right into the palace. Uh, you know, they probably save a fortune on door hinges doing think it that so. way. I mean, doorways even just whoop right mm-hmm. Princess Lana says, Look, Kevin, the palace has been invaded. Looks like they're running away now, Princess. How could that be? We left only one guard on duty. And at the end, there's Kevin's dog, Duke, happily chowing down on a bone while standing among a pile of bones yet to be chewed. Good lord. Is he eating one of the living skeletons? <laughs> Good thing we left it just, just the right guard. Duke will do anything for a bone. Yes, including commit a form of paranormal murder, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, that skeleton, by the way, was one day from retirement. I don't know if they didn't uh, mention that. It's always uh, away. 
while we're on the subject also, what if it hadn't been skeletons? I mean, we should, we got to discuss who's charge of pal security. If it had been like an army of regular guys, they would have just killed the dog. <laughs> so what the hell, you know? Can, 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 maybe you should do better than leaving just a dog next time you uh, leave the palace of power. But you know, it all worked out in the end because that is the end of that story. That's right. That was that it. Concluded. We're done. <laughs> That's right. But one, one more to go. Now, uh, our last story is "Money Changes Everything" by George Carrigan, Ross Andrew, oh, yeah, Bob Layton, <laughs> Jade, uh, Jay Jackson. It's probably Janet Jackson. Uh, and <laughs> well, seriously, it's a, it's a, not not the Janet Jackson. Oh, okay. Oh, the Janet Jackson. It's JJ Janet Jackson. All right, that makes uh, sense. Jim Shooter's pal, and uh, the graduation, the great. The gradations. Okay. I don't know what that's about. Now, but... so we're thinking that George probably wrote it. Ross Andrew must have penciled it. Yeah. Uh, Leighton likely inked it. Jade lettered it. J.J. Uh, Jackson and the gradations probably did the coloring since gradations is part of it. That seems like it. Either that or they did play. They could have played at my cousin's bar mitzvah. I'm not sure. What are the others? So. <laughs> they might have. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Ross Andrew. Uh, Ross Alav. And Druskovic, he was born June 15th, uh, 1927 in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, his parents uh, had fled from the Russia, fled the Russian Revolution. Uh, according to family lore, Andrew's mother was part Polish and part Russian royalty, while his father had played French horn for a European ballet company comprised of Russian refugees before, uh, before later doing so for the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. The family moved to New York City, and Ross attended the High School of Music and Art with friend and future collaborator Mike Esposito. Together, they did animated flipbooks. Ross was drafted and served in the Army during World War II. He was discharged in 1946. He uh, found work later that year drawing animated uh, chiclets for theater chewing gum commercials. Uh, Andrew attended Bern Hogarth's Cartoonist and Illustrator School, which was later the School of Visual Arts in 1947. His first professional comics work was for the Tarzan newspaper strip from 1948 until it ended around 1951. Yeah, his uh, co-conspirator, Mike Esposito, remembered, Byrne took Ross out of the class because he saw that the talent he had and asked him, would you like to assist me on Tarzan, the newspaper strip for the Sunday page of the New York Daily Mirror? He paid Ross by the month, and the GI Bill gave him a few bucks to live on. Ross would lay it out, and Byrne would link it with his approach, and would actually change everything, and it would look really like Byrne Hogarth when he got through with it. Ross had a great concept for visuals. Oh, sorry, Ross had a great concept for visuals for the layout for the storytelling. That's what Byrne Hogarth saw in Ross, and developed him to pull all that out—the shots and the depth of field. That only lasted a couple of years because the strip died about 1950 to 51. Then Ross came to me when I started publishing, and we more or less teamed up. Uh, this team's first confirmed collaboration was on the six-page Wiley's Wild Horses in Hillman Periodicals Western Fighters Volume 2, Number 12, November 1950, cover date, the start of a four-decade collaboration. And I'll tell you, as we go through this, when we say Ross did a job, you can... Nine times out of ten, Almost that, yeah. <laughs> assume Esposito was there with him, yeah. Uh, Ross formed a company with Mike Esposito in 1951 called MR Publications. They did freelance work on the short-lived Mr. Universe comic, which ran from July 1951 to 53, July 53 cover dates. They formed Mike Ross Publications in 1953 and did some 3D comics and romance comics and three issues of the Mad Magazine ripoff Get Lost. 
actually, you can get uh, a collection of that from Fanagraphics, I think, now. Oh, wow. In 1952, Andrew and Esposito began a long relationship with DC Comics, doing primarily war comics, beginning with All-American Men of War number 6. That was December 1962 uh, through December 63 cover date. Couldn't have been, but whatever. Uh, or those titles as well as uh, those titles as well as GI Combat and Our Fighting Forces. Andrew and Esposito drew hundreds of tales of combat under editor and frequent writer Robert Kaniger. From 1957 to 59, Andrew and Esposito shared a studio with fellow comics artist Jack Abel, uh, Art Petty, and Bernie Sashlight. Sashlight, yeah. But you'll see. They made it easy on you. Yeah, he was generally credited as Bernie Sachs, which makes it a little bit easier for (laughs) people like like me to say. Now, Andrew had a nine-year run on Wonder Woman, which began with issue number 98, May 1958 cover date. He and writer Robert Kaniger introduced the Silver Age version of the character. Also, with writer-editor Robert Kaniger, Andrew co-created the robot superheroes The Metal Men. This was in Showcase number 37, April 1962 cover date, going on to draw the first 29 issues of the series Metal Men from 1963 through 68. Esposito said Kaniger left the character design up to Ross and myself under his supervision, of course. Ross drew an early appearance of Kaniger's Sergeant Rock character in Our Armies at War, number 81. That's April 1959 cover date. Also with Kaniger, the Andrew Esposito team introduced the non-superpowered adventurers, the Suicide Squad, in The Brave and the Bold, number 25, cover dated September 1959. Andrew also drew early issues of Rip Hunter Time Master in 1961, also The Sea Devils. In 1967, Andrew left Wonder Woman to become the penciler on The Flash, with he and Inker Esposito drawing from issues 175 through 194, that's December 67 through February 1970 cover dates. Reuniting with Kaniger, Andrew co-created the Rose and the Thorn backup feature in uh, Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane issue number 105, October 1970 cover date, and that's a backup that... uh, Nobody really likes. Nobody right? likes. Maybe maybe they did in the seventies, but yeah, uh, they, they did. They are not very good. I've never been able to read one uh, all no. the way through myself. But anyway, uh, Andrew and Esposito formed the publishing company Clevart Enterprises in nineteen seventy, and two years later published two issues of a humor magazine cover titled "Up Your Nose and Out Your Ear," uh, which I would love to see. A yes. third issue was created, but never published due to financial problems. For the black and white comics publisher Skywald, Andrew and Esposito contributed many stories across the line in 1971, including to the horror titles Nightmare and Psycho, and the western titles Wild Western Action, The Bravados, and Butch Cassidy. With writer Gary Friedrich, they created Skywald's motorcycle-riding superhero, Hellrider. In the early 1970s, Andrew left DC for Marvel Comics, initially doing short runs on such titles as Marvel Feature where he launched the superhero team, the, De- the Defenders, in issue number one, December 1971, cover date. Ross also drew Marvel team-up, starting in March 1972. In 1973, he began his five-year stint as regular penciler on The Amazing Spider-Man, beginning with number 125, October 1973, cover date. He and Jerry Conway introduced The Punisher in The Amazing Spider-Man number 129, February 1974, cover date. In 1976, Andrew penciled the first large-scale comic book intercompany crossover, Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man, in a story written by Conway and co-published by Marvel and DC. In 1978, Andrew returned to D.C. to work as an editor, and that's a position that he'd hold until 1986. 
During this period, his art appeared mostly on the covers of such titles as Action Comics and Superman. Working with writer Marv Wolfman and collaborator Mike Esposito, he co-created the syndicated comic strip The Unexplained in 1979. It didn't last very long. In the 1980s, he returned to interior work. He and Roy Thomas collaborated on the Superman and his Incredible Fortress of Solitude Treasury Edition, published as DC Special Series number 26. Came with a summer 1981 cover date. Andrew made a brief return to the Wonder Woman title, drawing six pages in issue 300, February 1983. And in the following year, Andrew contributed to the 300th issue of World's Finest Comics as well. That was February 1984 cover date. Ross drew a new Teen Titans drug awareness comic book sponsored by the American soft drink industry that was published in 1983, and uh, we read that and the other two for uh, episode 35 of The Cosmic Treadmill, available in the archives. Uh, Ross was one of the contributors to the DC Challenge limited series in 1986, and other Andrew artwork appeared in Vigilante, uh, the 1984 series, as well as The Blue Beetle, that's the series that ran from 87, his work ran in 87 through 88. And uh, not too long after that, he apparently drew this story. Well, but you could have knocked me over a feather when I saw it. I was like, whoa, Ross Andrew, yeah, hello. This right? is a serious <laughs> guy with a pedigree. Do you know, did he draw the other two new Teen Titans PSAs? Do you know? No, no, George Perez did one, okay. uh, the first one, the Keebler one, and I don't remember who did the third. I can't remember. I, I didn't remember uh, the third one looking a little rough, but all right. Yeah, yeah. Now, our story begins with Kevin, Princess Lana, and Kid Icarus standing on a blue, rocky outcropping, same as Aaron descends upon them from above. Got a caption that reads, Deep inside the fortress pa- planet of Zebes. Ze- sure. Well, sure. Whatever you say, we'll <laughs> go with it. Captain N, Princess Lana, and Kid Icarus are about to run into trouble, unless trouble runs into them first. Samus Aran, who looks like an orange robot, tells them to move, and just in time, because then Samus zaps a whole swarm of menacing monster bugs. Thanks for the tip, but as long as I got my superpower pad and zapper trademark handy, do you mind if I polish off the ones behind us? Uh, I mean, yeah, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. Just get to zapping, dude. Like, Just do it. Yeah. Don't rub my face in it. Uh, Samus Saren is impressed with Kevin, and introductions are made. The Space Hunter. I know. I'm Captain N. I've played you hundreds of times. Uh, way to make it weird, dude. You know, like, you That's just awkward, better. That's right? Uh, Kid yeah. Icarus says, Gosh, Akas, Princess Lana, Samus is super duper Akas. And Lana says, well, Samus is a veteran of many impossible missions. Samus is a super-powered cyborg. Samus is the greatest space hunter in the Galactic Federation. When you use that tone, it sounds like she's pretty jealous. Yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> maybe. And when Samus Aran's helmet is removed... Samus is a... woman? <gasps> Kevin goes, whoa, you sure are. Yep, Samus Aran is a lady, if you didn't know, and that's canonical to the video game. Metroid co-creator Yoshio Yoshio Sakamoto recalled, We were partway through the development process when one of the staff members said, Hey, wouldn't it be kind of cool if it turned out that this person inside the suit was a woman? Uh, And only by beating Metroid in under an hour could the player gain access to a secret ending where Samus would remove her power suit and reveal herself as a woman. 
If you beat the game in under three hours, you got Samus Aran in a pink leotard at the con- at the conclusion, and uh, you could start a new game with the character, or you can you know use the the code. Pretty much, yeah, that that also worked. Or if Justin you beat, Bailey, throw him in you, there. Actually, I gotta say, I remember I did actually do I did get the leotard uh, without cheating. The third oh, wow. thing, though, if you beat the game in under an hour, I did not do this. You could see Samus Aran in a bikini. Uh, mm-hmm. That character was not playable anyway, though. No. Now the team heads out on their mission, Samus Aran now included with the team. Uh, and there's some exposition. Yeah, Samus Aran says, What brings you to Mother Braith's fortress planet, Captain? Then Kevin goes, Zeb. What the hell word is a Zebatite? I think it's Zebatite. Zebatite. The energy source Mother Brain needs to survive. A shipment is being transported to Metroid tonight. If we can stop that shipment, she's finished. With you on our side, Samus, we've got it made. Not so fast, Captain. I am a bounty hunter. There's a million credit price on Mother Brain's head, and I intend to get it. So who put out the hit on Mother Brain? <laughs> I mean, it seems like Captain Ed might want to, you know, link up with them. Uh, uh, they're, you know, they're not broke like Princess Lana is. Also, does that mean that there's an even bigger, like, more powerful evil in the universe outside of Mother Brain? Like a, a, I wonder. Kind of crack now, crazy, yeah. Yeah, the the, uh, the possibilities are maddening. Uh, now, uh, Kevin warns Samus against blasting some circular doorway, but he's too late. After Samus does it, she's attacked by a swarm of gametes. Sure are a lot of swarms on this planet, you notice that? Sure are. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, gametes are kind of flying leeches with turtle shells. Kid Icarus's arrows are useless, as usual, so Kevin takes aim with his zapper TM. And those are those are the ones that usually make the, the honking sound when you hit them, right? The, ah, yeah. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Samus, don't move a muscle. And then Kevin rapid fires the gamuts off of Samus. Kevin and Princess Lana come through the broken doorway to find Samus has already removed her helmet. Like right away, you know, you were just right? in danger yeah. and now your helmet is off. Like, what is wrong with you? Uh, Lana says, Samus, are you all right? Samus says, no, the gamuts drain my energy. My battle armor is going super critical. Without energy, I have 50 or 60 seconds before it goes up like a supernova. Oh, yeah? Well, you know, we, we, we might want to be hitting the road right now, so yeah. we can stay uh, to see so that. Uh, <laughs> best of luck with that. Uh, now, uh, Samus tells them to split, but Kevin says there's one chance. He remembers this level. This is the Fire Sea. Uh, using his D-pad to cheat, Kevin is able to grab an energy canister from some pillar and brings it to Samus. You did it! Of course! There's nothing compared to fighting Ridley on the next level. Uh, spoilers, dude. You know, she obviously isn't there yet, so... Metroid really isn't broken up into levels. <laughs> Not really, it's true. It's kind of, kind of <laughs> one level you have to keep going back and forth. Yeah. Now, uh, Samus heals her armor and makes some uh, goo-goo eyes at Kevin. You know, things are, things are heating up. Uh, Samus confides in Princess Lana. Power, knowledge, skill. Incredible. That is quite a boyfriend you have there, princess. He, he's not my boyfriend. And then Samus whispers, God. Why, why bother whispering? Your face is like right next to her ear. I mean, the two, they're almost like a it's, two-headed monster in this yeah, panel. It, it's like you're whispering it into her ear at this point. <laughs> yeah. You're not saying it under your breath. Uh, now, meanwhile, Mother Brain watches via video phone from Metroid as the uh, rare and precious Zebatite is prepared for shipment. Be careful! 
all you insects! Load that zebra type and get it to the shadow before I lose my kindly disposition. Captain N and the crew are hiding behind some containers, scoping out the scene as well. When we take out that zebra type, Mother Brain will lose more than her temper. Yeah, she'll lose her life. Right? She's you gonna know, die. It sounds it sounds mean when you say it aloud, doesn't it? Really? I didn't think of it. It does a little bit. Samus Aaron says. And after we finish her off, Captain, what then? Life in space is dangerous and short. When I want something, I make my move. Full speed ahead. I like you, Captain. Your skill. Your courage. Mm, you are the warrior I have searched for. Come with me. The universe will be ours. Samus, I... Uh... Then Princess Lana decides to butt in on this meet-cute. If you two are quite finished, we have a job to do. She like was she promoted to shift manager or something? <laughs> what the hell? You know, like what are you in charge? You're of on thing? the clock. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I didn't say I'd go, princess. Listen to me, Lana. And then Kevin lets his testosterone take over. He rushes out from his hiding spot, zapper in hand, ready to shoot the hovering loading dock droids. Uh, I want to blast something, and you creeps are elected. Kevin shoots directly at one of the tanks containing Zebatite, which really doesn't seem very smart, right? I don't know if that's the way what to do, but uh, it has no effect anyway. Our shots! They just bounce off! And Mother Brain is still there watching via video phone. She says, That's right, Captain N! You disgusting do-gooder! Your weapons are useless! Unfortunately, Kevin's zapper TM is immediately out of power, so, uh... I guess he didn't prepare for this one very it's well. This is your thing comes with a cable you can on? plug in. I mean, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, the, the, since the blast had no effect anyway, I guess it, it's kind of a moot point right now. Yeah. Uh, same as says, relax, Captain. My missile blast is the only thing that could destroy the Zebra type. Samus hops from behind, her, behind cover and uh, is about to take aim when Mother Brain interjects. A space hunter? Now, just a minute. I know why Captain Ed and this pretty little princess are on my case, but what's your problem? No problem at all. I am a space bounty hunter. There is a million credit price on your head. Hopefully the face will just the face will do, because I mean, I, it's mostly a face, right? That's pretty much it. And a it could be anybody's brain. brain. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's what I would say. <laughs> a million credits? Peanuts? What would you say to ten million credits? Mother Brain's video screen shows a big stack of gold bars, a pile of cash, and a gleaming bunch of gems. I thought this was supposed to be in credits, you know? I mean, money yeah. looks, it looks more complicated in video game space than it does on Earth, you know? Like, right? I gotta carry the gem and switch it over to Cad, but it's going on. Ten million in cash, and it's all yours if you let the Zematite go and turn the end team over to me! Come on, that's going to at least run 15 million credits, right? Yeah, you got to kick that up a little. Yeah, yeah that's, that's Bush League. Uh, now, Princess Lana has to kick up a fuss, of course. You're wasting your breath, Mother Brain. Samus is a hero. She'd never sell us out. And, you know, we've known her for, like, 10 minutes longer than we've, than, you know, than you have, right? So we friend, know. Sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, now, Princess Lana, however, has misjudged Samus. You can have them. But Captain N comes with me. In fact, how about you just uh, take Princess Lana right now as a show of good faith? Just, yeah. you know, whatever happens, just keep her, all right? Just, She's shoot, good just with shoot her out of, you know, out of torpedo tube, whatever you want to do, mm -hmm. just take her mm -hmm. away. 
Samus actually scoops Kevin up in her arms without his consent. He, he doesn't seem to mind, though. He looks yeah, pretty comfortable. Initially, sure. Yeah. He says, Join with me, Kevin. The stars will be our playground. Together, we will blaze a path of glory across the universe. Kevin breaks free of Samus's grasp and says, What kind of guy do you think I am? And Princess Lana has her back turned to him and says, Go with her, Kevin. Lana? Don't force me to make it an order, Captain. So is a princess... Princess must be a higher rank than captain in the military. So I, mean, I, I, thought, I thought Captain N was the prophesied hero to save Videoland, but he has to take orders from Princess from Lana? Princess Lana, yeah. I don't know. That doesn't seem right, Chris. No, Sorry. it sure doesn't. <laughs> well, Kevin says, You want me to go off with Samus and have fun while your mother brain's prisoner? I didn't say you had to have fun. What matters is that one of us is free to carry on the fight. Princess, I... I think we have ourselves a deal! Does a Kid Icarus get a vote here? I mean, he... no. what about him? No one wants to hear. He's just going to be like, Iacus, what a voticus, you know? Like, forget <laughs> it. We don't want to hear it. Uh, the gold bars have sometime somehow materialized in the space dock, I guess, a bonus payment or something. I don't know why that's there. And then, the deal is made. Yes, the caption reads, later, the shuttle carrying the mother brain Zebatite and her new prisoners approaches the Metroid asteroid. Princess Lana and Kid Icarus are in a purple-barred prison on the ship. The bars are more more than wide enough for either of them to fit through, right? Yeah. And, and, I mean, Kid Icarus actually just does that. Exactly. He busts out through the bars and says, Charge, Icarus! He flies out through the bars and at the robots piloting the ship. But then they pull off their helmets to reveal that they're Samus and Kevin. Chill out, dude. It's us. We took out the real guards before you came aboard and hijacked the ship. A Princess Lana rushes over and gives Kevin a big hug. Uh, we assume she just walked through the bars like Kid Icarus did. Thanks, Samus. Thanks, Samus. It was all her idea. A new space shuttle. Ten million in cash and a full load of Zebatite. Not a bad day's work. Or a bad day's criminal activity, in this case. <laughs> really? He just ripped it off is what happened. Even though it was Mother Brain, you, know, you still stole this you stuff. St you still stole it, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. You, let's be real here. Plus, you you went back on a bargain. The whole thing stinks. Uh, yeah. Princess Lana says, The Zibitite? Without it, Mother Brain is surely defeated. By defeated, you mean dead, right? Just say yeah. dead. You're going to kill, you're going to murder Mother Brain. <laughs> Committing murder. That's all there is you, to it. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're, you're pulling the plug on Mother Brain. You can <laughs> be final about it. Uh, now, but as Samus turns the shuttle away from Metroid. Unfortunately, no. Another shipment of Zebatite is going to arrive on Metroid tomorrow. But Mother Brain doesn't know that. She was more than willing to part with her treasure to save her hide. So won't Mother Brain be completely freaking out when this shipment of Zebatite doesn't arrive? Yeah, and how does she not know another shipment is coming tomorrow? Does she like not read this week's shipping receiving report? This she is like surely gets the bill of ladings, right? It's her life's blood. Yeah, you think yeah. you think this would be an important thing? Uh, Princess Lana and Kevin applaud the fact that Samus came up with this whole scheme simply to rip Mother Brain off and never intended to sell them out. Samus Aran takes Kevin in her arms and dips him. Of course, my brave captain. I may be greedy, but I'm not stupid. Princess Lana watches this over her shoulder, looking forlorn. 
And hey, Kid Icarus is there too. So that's oh, forgot about him. Yeah, good guy. And that does conclude Captain N, the Game Master number one. Mm-hmm. I feel saturated. I feel like we need to press the pause button and take yes. a little break here, Chris, so we can <laughs> uh, maybe wash the uh, you know sprites out of our eyes and uh, come back. And when we do, we're going to wrap up Valiant Comics and tell you a little bit more about Nintendo's biggest blunders. Welcome to Video Land. Wake up, Kid Icarus. Welcome to Castlevania. It's Congo Land. Behold, the ultimate warp zone. Kevin, I thought I told you to clean up your room. Game Master. Hey everybody, welcome back. You're Yo. just in time to hear talk about the rest of Valiant Comics. Now Valiant, as you remember, is an imprint of Voyager Communications, and they recruited numerous writers and artists from Marvel, including Barry Windsor Smith and, of course, Bob Layton. They conceived of an interconnected line of superhero comics featuring a mixture of the characters Magnus Robot Fighter, Turok Dinosaur Hunter, and Dr. Solar, who were licensed from Western Publishing and original creations of their own, such as Exo Manowar and The Harbinger, uh, but pumped uh, Nintendo and the World Wrestling Federation product first. Mm-hmm. Layton says... I was brought in to handle the superhero line only to find out that we were going to sit on those properties and pursue Nintendo and the WWF. I argue that those two audiences are notorious for not reading, period. (laughs) Uh, But upper management had dollar signs in their eyes and thought they could pull serious numbers from both franchises. It was a major miscalculation. Now, not only did the Nintendo comics sell poorly, Nintendo fans actively hated them. The wrestling comics fared a little bit better, but not by much. And they, they also featured some art from Steve Ditko, oddly. Oh, wow. Yeah, now, uh, millions of dollars were lost in acquiring and publishing the Nintendo comics, and Triumph, Valiant's venture capital investors, moved quickly to make some changes. They removed Chief Financial Officer Winston Folks and uh, replaced him with Fred Pierce. Now, Valiant continued publishing Nintendo and WWF comics until 1991, but had pretty much run out of money by this point. With an ever-present threat of office closure and artists working at reduced rates, Valiant launched their superhero line. In 1991, Valiant released its first superhero title, Magnus Robot Fighter, by Jim Shooter and Art Nichols, cover dated May. Next was Solar, Man of the Atom, number one by Jim Shooter and Don Perlin, cover dated September 1991. Harbinger number one, a January 1992 cover date by Jim Shooter and David Lapham, was listed on the top ten list of Wizard Magazine for a record eight consecutive months and was eventually named Collectible of the Decade. Rye number zero, November 1992 cover date by Jim Shooter and David Lapham, broke that record, appearing on Wizard's top ten list for a new record nine consecutive months. 
Shooter was creating a contiguous universe from the ground up, as Stan Lee had done for Marvel in the 1960s, and as he attempted to do for Marvel with the new universe in the late 1980s. In an interview with NerdTeam30.com posted March 2018, Jim Shooter said, So I would be there at the crack of dawn every day, and I would be there when I couldn't keep my eyes open anymore. I went 400 days in a row at one point and did nothing but sleep and work and have a sandwich on the run. I didn't get my hair cut. I didn't have time to get a haircut. My hair got long. I had to wear a baseball cap to keep it out of my eyes. People would laugh. They'd say, well, what did you do for Christmas? I worked all day. I was in the office. So were 14 other people, by the way. I worked Christmas and Thanksgiving. Everything. It just went on and on and on, and finally, we fought our way out of it. We started to make money. Money was rolling over the gunwales. Two million dollars, pre-tax profit a month. And then, of course, the evil bankers and lawyers stole it from me. It was a white-collar crime. I mean, it involved falsifying documents and lying under oath. It was definitely a criminal action, but they got away with it. And Shooter went on to say, Yeah, and not only that, my partner, Mazarski, got married to the banker. I remember that just after we started out. It was a couple of days before Christmas, and he says, I want to tell you something. What's that? I'm dating Melanie. What? You're what? I'm dating Melanie. And they ended up becoming a couple, and of course, between them, they had a controlling interest. Originally, the three operating partners, Masarski, a guy named Winston Folks, and me, owned 60%, and the investors owned 40%. Well, once Masarski went over to her side, then it was 60-40 the other way. And of course, he's literally in bed with her. So that's why we ended up doing Nintendo comics. I didn't want to do Nintendo comics. I didn't want to do wrestling comics. But Masarski, who was a lawyer, represented Nintendo, and he represented the WWF. And so he was sitting on both sides of the table in those negotiations. And his girlfriend-to-be-wife went along with whatever he said. They called the shots. Mmm, a lot of weird uh, inside works here. Uh-huh. Jim finishes up to say, We were doing things like having to account for every hour of every person on staff, fill out charts and forms, and anybody who didn't do enough work to justify their salary had to be cut. Well, I was there 18 hours a day, so what happened was that even though I was the highest paid guy, I would always outdo my quota by double or triple. So what I would do is I would take work that I did and pretend that other people did it. You see credits for Bob Layton, editor? Nah. You see coloring by so-and-so? Nah. It was me spreading credit for my over-quota work around so that everyone could keep their jobs. Things like that were just to keep everybody employed until we turned it around. But then we did turn it around, and I thought, hey, we made it. So much so that in 1992, Valiant won the best publisher under 5% market share from comic distributor Diamond. The following year, Valiant won Best Publisher over 5% market share, becoming the only publisher outside of Marvel and DC to do so. Former Valiant editor Jeff Gomez remembers, the, the initial artistic chemistry of Valiant, when Jim Shooter and Barry Windsor Smith were spearheading the direction of the superhero universe, was a rare flashpoint in the history of comics. Those were unique, personal, and passionately told stories. Shooter was doing everything he ever wanted to do at Marvel, but had been hampered from doing. Although it's a common take today to have superheroes interacting with the everyday world where no one had ever seen flying people, alien spacecraft, or magical powers, the concept was fairly new back then. An incredible amount of attention was being given to detail, continuity, science, and graphic presentation. 
And so, again, in 1992, Valiant's editor-in-chief Jim Shooter was given the Lifetime Achievement Award for co-creating the Valiant Universe in a ceremony that also honored Stan Lee for co-creating the Marvel Universe. By the end of 1992, however, Jim Shooter would leave Voyager Entertainment and therefore Valiant Comics. According to Masarsky, Jim had a different idea as to the direction of the company, so he was asked to leave. Mm. To be frank, what caused Shooter to leave Valiant exactly isn't clear. Some kind of disagreement at the executive level is the best we could find. But it does seem that Jim left on his own volition, or at least it was allowed to look that way. He's got a book in him, doesn't he? Oh, for sure. And uh, I would love to read it. A lot of this information does come from his uh, blog, but the Valiant posts have been scrubbed. They have been, yeah. Kevin Van Hook, uh, who worked at Valiant, remembers... I called Jim the night he left and asked him how he felt since I was being asked to write Solar and attend an Eternal Warrior, and he said he felt it was the smartest thing Valiant could do. I know since then that Jim may have felt that I turned against him by staying and developing the titles I did, but there was never any animosity there for me. I respected what he had done and for a long time tried to take the characters where I thought he wanted them to go. Even with the internal problems, Valiant would quickly become profitable, and the debt to Triumph Capital was quickly wiped out. Following the conclusion of the Unity crossover in September 1992, Valiant released Bloodshot, Ninjak, Hardcore, uh, that's H-A-R-D Corpse, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> as in like the Marine Corps, uh, The Second Life of Dr. Mirage, and Time Walker, among other titles. The staff would grow to nearly 200 employees overall, with 18 artists working in tandem. Back to Kevin Van Hook, who explains, After Unity was successful, and really after Hardcore, we grew a bit. I brought on Cliff Van Meter, Darren Sanchez, Simon Eric, Jesse Berdinka, etc. I stopped stopped being production manager in the fall of that year and started editing. By January, I was executive editor and vice president. Many of our multi-talented colorists were also writers and editors. Maurice Fontenot and Jorge Gonzalez were prime examples. Most of our growth was in having multiple editors and an influx of creators as well as expanding our production department to do trading cards and special projects. To that, Bob Layton adds, shortly after Shooter departed and our sales began to skyrocket, I recall sitting in a meeting with John Hartz and Steve Masarski where we mutually agreed never to print over 500,000 copies of any of our titles. I harped on the fact that the numbers that Marvel was drawing on the X-Men were not reflective of the number of actual readers in the comics market. Of course, greed is a bitch. Eventually, the temptation became simply too great to resist, and we started printing to speculator demands. That proved to have huge negative repercussions down the road. Kevin Van Hook and Don Perlin's new book, Bloodshot No. 1, February 1993, Cover Date, shattered that 500,000-copy threshold with a stunning 742,000-copy initial print run. It had a chromium cover and a cover penciled by Barry Windsor Smith and carried a steep price of $3.50. Now, here, here's, I, I love, I just love synchronicity. In, in uh, great? <laughs> uh, it hit shelves the same day as Superman number 75. That was November 12, 1992. Van Hook remembers that Forbidden Planet and NYC, there were two lines around the block, one for each mega-hit selling book. And I believe it. Oh, yeah. Uh, when the new series titled Rye and the Future Force premiered six months after Rye number zero with a May 1993 cover date by Bob Layton, John Ostrander, and Sean Chen, a staggering 900,000 copies were produced. 
It was the first time a Valiant book was listed in the top 10 best-selling list and landing on the list as number four comic of the month. Each subsequent month after would feature a Valiant comic on, in that top 10 list as the following months would see Magnus 25 at, no, at number seven, Exo Man of War number zero at number four, and the crossover with Image Comics, Deathmate, which we'll talk about in a minute, reached the number <laughs> one spot. A Torok would see his own title premiere to massive results as an overwhelming 1,750,000 copies of the book would be produced. Even at nearly 2 million copies, Torok would only reach number four on the wow. top 10 list that month. That, that just tells you how crazy. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's an even crazier statistic than the print run. It's like, holy It God. is. <laughs> yeah. Now, back issues from the Jim Shooter days with relatively low print runs of around $25,000. I'm sorry, $25,000 copies each, now commanded prices over $100. And it wasn't only publishers and retailers making good on the speculation over number one issues and chromium covers. As editor Jeff Gomez would recall, he says, funny story. At the time I came to Valiant, I wasn't doing very well financially. My wife and I just moved and money was tight. I wouldn't see my first paycheck for a couple of weeks. So I actually took my copy of Bloodshot Number Zero Gold and sold it to a comic book store that first week for $50. <laughs> I bought groceries with that money. Sorry, Kevin. How could you resist, though? I mean, you, right? you look around your office, you just have uh, cartons of cash sitting around. That's it. <laughs> uh, Van Hook recalls, when I got there, a lot of the colorists were pulling all-nighters. There was no good sense of scheduling. Initially, that's what I brought to the table. I was also unusual because I was a suit and an artist. Both sides could talk with me. It sounds pompous, but the fact is that I brought a calming influence to the situation because I understood both sides of the equation. And that's why, quite literally, my desk was on the corner of Knob Row. This is the nickname of all the valiant artists and Park Avenue where the execs sat. There were nerf fights and zaniness and hard work. I think I earned my wings with everyone the week Shooter left. Mazarski came to me and said, we understand if books don't ship to the printer this week. I told him that I would felt that would be unacceptable. We were moving on without Jim. We could not miss a beat. I was the suit who didn't sleep and who never asked anyone to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. It makes a difference when you ask somebody to go above and beyond if they see you're right there with them. Editor Jeff Gomez recalls, Knob Row itself was several rows of artist desks, originally built to house nearly all of Valiant's freelancers. I believe Bob Layton coined the term because of how young and new uh, most of the talent was. They were like doorknobs waiting to be turned. Another wonderful thing about Knob Row is that Bob would give weekly lessons in penciling and inking to the freelancers there. It was the warmest and most fulfilled I'd ever seen Bob, and he really did pass on a lot to a lot of talent onto the kids. The whole place would stop, and there was a hush as they watched him inking a comic book page. It was magic. Gomez continued, I'd also noticed that Bob Layton was a very strong personality and that the editor's writers tended to be demure around him. They tended to default to ideas they knew he liked and concepts that he'd given a thumbs up to previously. So we were seeing a whole lot of stories featuring spider aliens, Dr. Eclipse, and Solar splitting in half. Things were starting to get repetitive. That's not to say that Bob didn't recognize this and demand fresh ideas. He certainly did. But he could be imposing and critical of stuff he didn't like, and a lot of the staff was pretty thin-skinned. Now, not every gimmick Valiant came up with was spun with gold. This one into gold, as a writer and editor, Tony Bedard, remembers. Far and away, my least favorite Valiant innovation was Valiant Vision. 
That silly 3D effect was achieved by coloring near items in warm colors and distant items in cool colors. The results looked awful without the glasses on, and it was a huge distraction from the story to see the art colored so garishly. I still can't look at an issue of Psylords without cringing. And uh, he went on to remember, Among the things that set apart the Valiant line were the hand coloring, which looked great until computer coloring blew it out of the water, and the gold logo program. We used to give out limited edition gold logo books to readers out there who did something to promote our books in their area. It was a great way to do a sort of viral marketing, but the special logos and holograph covers and such were such an unhealthy sign, a reflection of the speculator mentality that both inflated our sales artificially, then left us high and dry when the bubble collapsed. He continues, Valiant was a magical place to work for a while there. It seemed like we could do no wrong and the sky was the limit. I think a lot of that success was really set up by the solid basic storytelling Jim Shooter demanded in the early days, and the more we got away from that, the more the company lost its way over time. There was a real tight-knit family atmosphere there, and I'm still close friends with a lot of the Valiant folks to this day. Uh-oh, a little bit of foreshadowing here, Chris. Look out. Uh, now, Deathmate, that was a six-part uh, comic book crossover between Valiant Comics and Image Comics, published in 1993 and 1994. This was designated these issues by color rather than issue numbers, namely yellow, blue, black, and red, plus two bookend issues, Deathmate Prologue and Deathmate Epilogue, as well as preview issues collected with comic products. The plot evolved around a chant interdimensional meeting of two characters, Solar from Valiant and Void from Image's Wildcats, or Jim Lee's Wildcats, wherever it was at the time. Uh, The two became lovers, but their joining would mean the destruction of both comic book universes. Although the issues of Deathmate produced by Valiant shipped on schedule, those produced by Image Comics did not, which was sort of their thing at the time, if you will recall. Uh, Large initial orders were canceled when books were delayed, then reordered later at more prudent numbers. Fans also lost interest in this crossover over time, leaving retailers with many unsold copies. And now Bob Layton says, Here's what you don't know about that time at Valiant. I literally had nothing to do with most of those projects. Deathmate was thrust upon us because Steve Masarski and Jim Lee were best buddies at the time and had privately arranged the crossover. The project was jammed down our throats and we did our best to comply, although most Valiant creators thought it was a bad idea. On top of that, Image couldn't make a deadline with a gun to their head. At one point, I wound up flying to L.A. and sitting on Rob Liefeld's doorstep, literally refusing to leave until he penciled his part of the Deathmate prologue. I had to ink that chapter of the book in a hotel room in Anaheim. What a pain in the ass that was. There I was with my own company to manage, and I was in California managing someone else's people. I look back at it and can't believe some of the spit I had to put up with as EIC of Valiant. As far as failures, Deathmate and Valiant promotion, Birthquake, which we'll talk about in a minute, were unmitigated disasters. Not necessarily in the numbers, but in the consequences of their release. For further cross-promotion, two trading card companies also did a crossover, Upper Deck and Tops. But because of the deadline problems with Image, Tops ended up, ended up backing out of their contract. Uh, Bob Layton would continue, I think that Deathmate sounded the beginning of the problems, and when Image couldn't get their side of the crossover out on time, it hurt everyone. I think, Valiant Crossover Event Chaos Effect, the next summer was a decent idea, but there wasn't anything new to capture the audience's imagination. We've made a specific mistake in choosing not to advertise during the summer of 93. Our books were almost too hot, and we wanted to get more realistic numbers. 
Remember, we were the collectible company. That meant wealthier speculators buying cases of the stuff, hoping to sell it for 10 times what they paid for it within a year. In some cases, they did. Mm-hmm. That's why there's so much of our output from that era on the market. Yeah, it, did, it really did work for a little while. For, for a little while, there, was, yep. there were some people that could, that could uh, make some serious cake, but uh, that didn't go on forever. Now, near the end of 1993, it was noted that demand for Valiant had reached a plateau as many dealers starting to sell new issues. Uh, they started to sell their new issues at half off. At that time, Valiant investors Triumph Capital were looking to cash out, and Bob Layton explains, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened and why we had no control over the sale of the company. Triumph, by the end of 93, had made a small fortune off of Valiant. We were netting about $30 million a year, and they had more than satisfied their investors. If you understand how venture capital works, they are always short-term investors. Once Triumph had made sufficient profits, they ordered Masarsky to sell the company. They wanted out. They were in the venture capital business, not the publishing biz. They didn't even give us a choice. He continues, Steve and I met with a variety of potential new owners. Unfortunately, the highest bidder was Acclaim. The geniuses at Acclaim paid 70, I'm sorry, $65 million for us. Although if they had done their homework, they would have discovered that we were only valued at around $30 million. Only after they acquired us did we find out that they had attempted to buy Image, who Acclaim felt matched their video game demographics, but were laughed out of their offices. Then someone at Acclaim got the idea to buy Valiant. Since Steve and John Hartz and I were the, were the major private uh, stockholders of Valiant, we all got millions from the sale of the company. However, the way the deal was set up, the money was placed in escrow and paid out in one-fifth increments over five year, over the five-year term of our employment agreements. I, I bet it was still quite a nice chunk yeah, of five. Yeah, nothing to complain yeah, about. Really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, in 1994, Voyager Communications was purchased by video game developer and publisher Acclaim Entertainment. With the buyout complete, Acclaim was now willing to give the Valiant line some money. The first thing that was done was to bring in some top-level artists to pencil the books. To usher in the new artists, Valiant would promote their arrival in a marketing promotion titled Birthquake. Masarsky would contract artists like Keith Giffen, Norm Brayfogle, and Bart Sears, some receiving as much as $20,000 to pencil a single issue. On top of the salaries, the decision was made to publish two books a month for two months as part of the Birthquake event. With only ten books left of Valiant line, eight having been canceled, including mainstays like Harbinger and Rye, Birthquake was intended to pull fans back to Valiant Comics, and it didn't. No, of uh, Birthquake, Kevin Van Hook would say, the idea that if you went into a comic shop and your favorite title wasn't there, you were steered to try something else. What if a new issue came out every two weeks, twice as often as before? That was the genesis for our frequency. I think that the crux of our problem was, and the ultimate reason that the books are no longer published is that we, the company, was too quick on multiple equations to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I genuinely believe that it would have been better to keep doing what, he, what we had done and not reinvent everything over and over again. He continues, in the case of Birthquake, we brought in some really expensive talent to write and draw the titles that sold 3 to 5% more than they had with homegrown talent like Maurice and Jorge, or myself for that matter. When you pay 40000 more an issue for a big name to do a book and it sells 5,000 more copies, it doesn't take a genius to see that it wasn't the talent that was hurting sales. It may have had more to do with the anti-collectible backlash than anything else. And we had become a fad. People hate fads when they're over. 
I was the biggest Miami Vice fan in the world for the first season when nobody else watched it. The next year when my neighbor wore pink shirts and white pants and the show was plastered all over creation, I wanted nothing to do with it. Mm. All 10 books would continue to see sales slip, with Time Walker, 16 issues, plus a yearbook, uh, yearbook one-shot, ran January 1995 through March 1996 cover date. Shadow Man, 44 issues, plus two one-shots, May 1992 through December 1995 cover date. And The Visitor, a two-issue prologue and then a 13-issue series that ran February through November 1995. They never really caught on with the fans. Editor Jeff Gomez says, Why did VH1, the, uh, the common name for this wave of Valiant Comics, fail despite the birthquake of effort? I think there were a lot of reasons, but the most important one, I feel, is that the launch had no creative visionary at the helm. We had some good talent on the books, writers and artists, who had, been, who had not been interns six months before, but by that point, Bob Layton had become disenchanted with the company and seemed to feel that he was not allowed to impose his vision on the books. It would have been fine had that vision been turned over to someone with a strong enough will to continue to cultivate and back up the editors, grapple with these hotshot creators, and a focused vision to boot. But, truth to tell, no one was driving the locomotive. The train was going to crash. And Bob Layton himself offers some insight here. He says... The numbers remained abysmal. The company was losing its shirt big time over Birthquake. It was supposed to be an instant fix to lowering unit sales by simply putting out twice as many units a month. Real bad move. Kevin Van Hook, despite not working for Valiant at the time, still casts himself in the center of things. He says the layoffs were six months or so after Birthquake hit. Morale was down. I'd already left NYC to pursue writing full-time and had moved to San Diego. I was asked to come back as managing editor for triple my salary and a house. I said yes, then called Mazarski an hour later and had to take it back. I knew that for me and my family, it was the worst decision I could make. We loved our new home in California, and it would have been a stress-filled job for me. There were people in the company that felt that my decision not to return spelled the end of things for them. The day that most of the old guard were laid off, they played Darth Vader's theme on stereo at full blast. A sweet comment that was passed on to me that someone commented, where's Luke Skywalker? Isn't he coming in after the Darth Vader theme to save us? The response was, nope, Luke moved to San Diego. That sounds like something people actually said. So, uh, oh, I'm sure humans said that. Yeah. yeah. Then uh, Tony, <laughs> Tony Bedard says, uh, I was laid off along with much of the staff a few months after a horrible birthquake effort. I was big part of the Birthquake recruiting effort, so I share in that failure. As for bir- the Birthquake thing, we just felt that we were sliding badly and needed some new blood and popular creators in there. All we accomplished was to alienate all of our old fans and repel any new readers. Bob Layton would say Steve Masarski was interviewing replacements for my editor-in-chief position, but he needed someone who could act as a deal-breaker on the costly Birthquake creator deals. A revamp of the entire line gave them the ability to cancel those expensive contracts. Hmm, so then Fabian Niciesa was hired as editor-in-chief, specifically to cancel the remaining Valiant titles and launch all new t- issues of the titles, revamp with all new talent to come aboard. The VH1 era was done and had to be eradicated to make way for the Valiant Heroes comics by Acclaim Comics, which would be known as VH2. Fabian Nicieza said the decisions on how to approach the titles were pretty open. It wasn't an autocratic decision-making system. I presented my thoughts on relaunching the new universe for a variety of reasons. 
For every argument I had in favor of doing that, of course, there were equally valid arguments against. It wasn't an ego thing. It was a business decision. How can we make the most noise? How can we get fresh creative voices on our books? How can we best reposition our properties for the marketplace and for the needs of our parent company? Ultimately, with the three decision makers, Steve Masarski, John Hartz, and myself, with input from editors, agreed to proceed with VH2. Instead of forcing the Valiant staff to make comic books about Acclaim's properties, as someone might assume, Acclaim instead attempted to develop video games from Valiant's properties. Shadow Man, Armorines, Project Swarm, and Iron Man and Exo Manowar and Heavy Metal were some of those games. Uh, the last one featured Valiant's Exo Manowar alongside Marvel's Iron Man. There were a couple of Turok Dinosaur Hunter games, too, and more on those in just a bit. The decision was to launch some new books, along with reimaginings of some of the older Valiant books. Bloodshot, Magnus, Ninjak, Shadow Man, and Exo Manowar would all come back, alongside new series like Trinity Angels, Troublemakers, and Quantum and Woody, which we talked about a little while back. I think it was 90 or something like that. It was a something while Something like yeah. that, yeah. Uh, old favorites like Turok and Eternal Warrior would come out as quarterly specials and might feature a story, might figure stories featuring characters from Time Walker, Eternal Warrior, and Archer and Armstrong. Uh, Nisiesa would also bring aboard some heavy-hitting writers to help boost the relaunch. These included Kurt Busiek, Garth Ennis, Brian Augustine, and Mark Wade. Brian Augustine, who teamed with Mark Wade to write that new Exo Manowar, recalled, Fabian Nicieza invited Mark Wade and I to join up soon after he conceived of relaunching the line. I'm pretty sure he got to come along because I was Mark's writing partner at the time, but we had a bunch of fun. Mark and I pretty much totally had total freedom to reinvent the Exo and his cast and surroundings. All of that was ours, with input and kibitzing from Fabe and his staff. I think the only thing we were handed was that the armor had to have some sort of continuity to the previous incarnation. And that in and that at in sorry, and that at in the past the armor had fallen into the hands of Nazis who used it in World War Two. We were fine with that. Uh, Mark Wade himself added, a cross between Captain America and Iron Man was all that was handed to us, and the rest was our uh, was our invention. To be brutally honest, in order not to accidentally rip anything off from earlier creators, I remember specifically avoiding reading any of the previous EXO run, a record I hold to this day. Oh, that's very nice. I wonder if it still applies. I'm not sure. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> uh, the books would debut in 1997 to numbers that fell below the final issue numbers of the VH1 series. With the exception of EXO Man of War, most of the print runs per book fell somewhere in the ballpark of 12,000 copies per issue. Nicias amused, I think Quantum and Woody was our A-plus book, head and shoulders above not just our publishing line, but those of most other companies as well. I thought the Turok Quarterly book was some of the best work I've ever done. I thought the first four issues and the last four issues of EXO were really, really fun comics, and Magnus and Shadow Man all had some very good moments. I think Ninjak was underrated, probably because it was such a radical departure from the previous incarnation, but also because it was intended to, as an all-ages constructive comic book at the dawn of a period when you weren't deconstructing superheroes, then you obviously just weren't cool. Jeff Gomez had another take. He says, I edited Kerpusik on Ninjak, and I found the story sweet, uh, well-crafted, and sometimes delightful. But this was Kurt Friggin' Busick, superstar creator of Marvel's and Astro City. With all the freedom granted to him by Fabian, why did he turn Quesada's hyper-cool ninjack into a kid who fights monsters that come, out, come to life out of a video game? 
Well, in the end, it didn't matter all that much because the initial set of writers on the VH2 books were almost entirely gone from them uh, before the first year was out. I think the sales on the books reflected this lack of focus, and after some initial interest, less and less books were being purchased at retail. Gomez also comments on this lack of creative direction. He says, In XO Man of War, there was a massive alien invasion of Earth, but because I didn't know it was happening until weeks before that issue hit the stands, my characters, Bloodshot, Ninjak, Trinity Angels, Eternal Warriors, could not be involved, and my books didn't acknowledge it. As a sucker for continuity, and one of the founders of this new universe, I was horrified. Frankly, I also believe that as a company, Acclaim Comics was not getting the very best from this new cadre of writers. He goes on to say, one of the smartest redos was Fabian's take on Turok. Acclaim got the most mileage out of that one, because the new universe helped Fabian to create in Turok's new lost land. Galliana formed the basis for a couple of big-selling video games. That was the name of the new Lost Land, Galliana. Uh, indeed, Acclaim released Turok the Dinosaur Hunter, a first-person shooter with a 360-degree range of movement on Nintendo 64 and Windows in 1997. It was a critical and sales success, worldwide sales surpassing $60 million within three months. Gomez said, Turok Dinosaur Hunter boasting my storyline of Turok search for an assembly of the Chrono Scepter. The game's first day gross sales and dollars exceeded most blockbuster movies. It was huge. I could wind up creating an even more elaborate storyline for the sequel, Turok 2, Seeds of Evil. Now, the game's successes would unfortunately not parlay into bigger sales for the comic books. By the time the first Turok game came out, the comics were selling in the 20000 to 40000 range. By the time the second game came out, they were selling in the teens. Jeff Gomez says, Acclaim and its product, pro, bleh, product developers were no longer incentivized to make video games based on characters nobody seemed to care about. The comics brass couldn't convince Acclaim to make games that would bring the characters new prominence and help sell them into Hollywood. It was all a downward spiral. Yeah, Fabian Eciasm used, I think the company had burned a lot of bridges with fans, retailers, and the comics press. I honestly, probably stupidly, wasn't aware of how scorched that earth was. There were less website outlets available at that time for the kind of daily publicity you see now aimed at hardcore at a hardcore target audience. Wizard was the big comic book publicity machine back then, and we were pretty much gum under their shoes at that time. I think if we'd had as many online publicity outlets available as there are right now, we might have had a better chance of building more word of mouth on some of our titles. Ultimately, the simple truth is we were good, but not good enough. In order to reclaim lost readers, lost retailers, and new readers, we had to be great, and we weren't. Not even close. Still reeling from the financial losses from Birthquake, Acclaim Entertainment tasked Fabian Nicieso with creating a program for licensing out Acclaim's superhero characters to Hollywood, while trying to generate income by publishing Classics Illustrated books and licensed Universal Studios properties like Baywatch and Waterworld. Uh, Valiant had, uh, looks like Valiant's come full circle to yeah. publishing licensed uh, properties again. I wouldn't mind seeing that uh, Baywatch comic myself, but yeah, this, sure. this is not, not, a, not a great position for a company not that a was cranking millions not long ago millions yeah all at once the vh2 line of com superhero comics ended on books cover dated june 1998 acclaim would continue to produce comics but focus on miniseries and one shots instead of ongoing titles nisiesa confesses i initiate i initiated the 
cessation of our NYC operations. Or secession. How do you say that? Secession. 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 Yeah. One of those. <laughs> he, he put it together where it was stopping. Uh, yeah, he yeah, well, it, yeah. He, he continues. I probably could have worked to massage the budgets and maybe gotten another year out of the publishing program. But then I wouldn't have been honest to my responsibilities. I basically went to the officers of our parent company and said, we can't keep going like this anymore. He continues, we had to reduce the staff from 24 to 7 and relocate our operations to Glen Cove, Long Island, which is where Acclaim Entertainment is. I knew that I wouldn't stay long after that since it was a three-hour commute each way from home. I just had my second child and I was pretty burned out by the failure of it all. I hoped, I'd hoped the relocated employees would have an opportunity to acclimate themselves to their new surroundings, see if things would work out for them, then have the chance to make decisions on their own. Four months after the move, Fabian Nicieza would resign as editor-in-chief of Acclaim Publishing. The cease of uh, publication didn't last long, and under the guidance of new editor-in-chief, Walter Black, new miniseries started to come out. Quantum and Woody would be resurrected, starting off at issue 32, September 1999. It's numbered where the comic would have been had there not been a break. Uh, then it would jump back to issue 18. It would only publish a couple more. Uh, Shadow Man, number one, debuted with a July 1999 cover date and would see its second resurrection, this time at the hands of the writing duo Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, known for their VH1 Ninjak run and a certain better-known run on Marvel's Guardian of the Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy later on. Uh, Dan Abnett remembered, We had a lot of freedom to create. We worked closely with the UK-based game company, incorporating their ideas into the Shadow Man strip as much as they worked our ideas into the game. You must remember that Chris Priest had reworked Shadow Man significantly just prior to our involvement. He set up a lot of new ideas, quite brilliantly, we thought, and we were able to run with this setup and develop it. Unfortunately, things went exactly the same way as they did the first time with Ninjak. Editorial changes. We carried on working with a different editor, but hardly ever spoke to him. We were working from pre-approved plot. One day, we discovered the editor had been sacked a month before, and we were emailing and leaving messages. For no one. That's a crazy situation that definitely no one is minding the store anymore here. Uh, in its last month, Acclaim would release Shadow Man number six, Armorines number four, and Unity 2000 number three. The last issue of the Armorines miniseries concluded as intended, but Shadow Man and Unity 2000 would remain unfinished. A note from the Acclaim solicitation of Shadow Man number seven claimed that the issue would be the last of the title as the series was going on hiatus but that issue would never be released. Series writers Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning were paid for the entire 12 issues they had written, the 12th issue being the wrap-up of the entire arc. Dan says six of them were published. Andy and I only ever saw copies of the first three issues. Oh, boy. Unity 2000 was an attempt to tie together the storylines and characters from from the older Valiant universe and the newer Acclaim universe. The six-issue miniseries would serve to set up a cohesive continuity throughout the various waves of a valiant and acclaimed superhero characters. Brought back into the fold to write the series was none other than Jim Shooter, bringing with him Jim Starlin of Silver Surfer and Warlock fame, and yes, Chris, Batman too, as you've pointed uh-huh, out. Uh-huh. Uh, they burped out three issues of Unity 2000, <laughs> November 1999, January 2000 cover, cover dates, before Acclaim ceased publication. By this, time, J- by this time, James Peham, the very last employee from the Valiant Comics era, had to turn off the lights. No, I'm sorry. He, he was the de facto production manager and would stay on the company until, 
uh, until 2003. Jeff Gomez recalls, I'm also sorry about the mess James Perham ran into with Unity 2000. He was really trying to relaunch the Valiant Universe one final time, based out of Acclaim Entertainment headquarters, long after the demise of the comic company's New York offices. There were so many expenses involved with bringing the books back that Acclaim just dropped it. One of the final issues produced by Acclaim would be the end of the Armourine series. That was issue number four with a January 2000 cover date. The issue barely hit stands as only 2,500 copies were released. Wow. Acclaim Comics' web anthology, two self-contained 22 web page stories were announced, uh, bringing to the, uh, the web new stories each month featuring characters from across the Valiant universe. Those stories were planned to be uh, reproduced later as physical comic books in a series simply called Acclaim Comics. The final issues of Unity 2000 continued to be resolicited, and the Acclaim schedule would also include new one-shots for fan-favorite Dr. Mirage, Harbinger, Bloodshot, Magnus, and a Shadow Man comic that would tie into the latest Shadow Man game. It was also announced in a forum post by Purim that the remaining issues of Quantum and Woody, that's 20 through, 22 through 27, haven't been listed because we still don't know the exact months they'll appear and what format, single issue compilations on the web, etc. Uh, but there was most definitely, to, there, but there will still most definitely be Quantum and Woody products hitting the stands during the period. Unity 2000 never finished, and the Acclaim Comics web anthology would never surface on Acclaim's website. In 2004, after some bad business decisions unrelated to comic books, Acclaim became financially insolvent and filed Chapter 7 bankruptcy on September 1st in Central Islip, New York. Yeah, they lost their uh, WWE at the time license and some other things happened and that pretty much was the death blow for Acclaim. Yeah. But that's not the end of Valiant, folks. You can't keep them down. Uh, in 2005, the rights to Valiant Acclaim's original characters, such as Archer and Armstrong, Rye and Quantum and Woody, were auctioned off and bought by Valiant Entertainment. The rights to these, the rights to three licensed characters, Solar, Magnus, and Turok, reverted to Classic Media, who was then owner of the Gold Key Comics properties, and that was acquired by DreamWorks Animation SKG in July 2012. Valiant Entertainment was a company formed by a group of investors led by Dinesh Shamdasani and Jason Kothari for the express purpose of buying these characters. Jim Shooter was hired at the end of 2008 to write new stories to be included in hardbound collections of Valiant comics. In October 2009, Valiant filed a lawsuit against Jim Shooter, which alleged, among other things, that he was secretly editor-in-chief of Valiant during 2009, and that he had been hired to bring back the gold key properties, which didn't happen whether he was tasked to do it or not. From what we can tell, the lawsuit was dropped uh, or never went to trial for some reason, and uh, Jim Shooter is in charge of Dark Horse's line of gold key revivals, so... You can draw your own conclusions. We're not really sure what happened there, but it definitely is funny. Uh, yeah. And in it, just like suddenly to find out that he was the editor-in-chief. I wonder if he, he knew even. He might not have even uh, known. Yeah. <laughs> in an event dubbed the Summer of Valiant beginning March 2012, Valiant Entertainment launched the Valiant Comics Universe with four ongoing titles, XO Man of War, Harbinger, Bloodshot, and Archer and Armstrong, one launching each month for four months. Exo Manowar premiered May 2nd, 2012, with the creative team of writer Robert Vendetti and artist Carrie Nord. 
The first issue of XO Man of War received over 42,000 pre-orders, making Valiant the largest new publisher launch in over a decade, and it had four printings in total. This was followed by Harbinger, which was launched in June 2012 by writer Joshua Dysart and artist Carrie Evans. Bloodshot launched in July 2012 by writer Dwayne Swierzynski with artist Manuel, Manuel Garcia. And Archer and Armstrong launched in August of 2012 by writer Fred Van Lenthe and artist Clayton Henry. Valiant Entertainment extended the Summer of Valiant 2012 event and added a fifth ongoing title with Shadow Man. That came out in November 2012 by writer Justin Jordan and artist Patrick Zarcher. The comic debuted as the number one non-Marvel and or DC comic of the, of the month. At the end of 2012, Valiant won a number of Publisher of the Year awards, winning Publisher of the Year under 5% market share, and was nominated for Book of the Year for XO Man Award number one at the Diamond Gem Awards. They won that uh, Publisher of the Year under 5% two times now. Twice. Yeah, two times in two, two different uh, centuries. It's true. <laughs> now, in January 2013, Valiant announced that Chief Creative Officer and co-founder Dinesh Shemstazani had been promoted to CEO and Chief Creative Officer. In uh, May 2013, Dinesh announced the Summer of Valiant 2013, during which the company would launch two new ongoing series, that's Quantum and Woody and Eternal Warrior. Uh, they would also change the story direction and uh, Bloodshot and reveal Bloodshot's origin in a special Zero issue. Quantum and Woody was written by James Asmus and drawn by Tom Fowler, uh, launched, uh, rebooted, really, in July 2013. It became the most nominated title at the 2014 Harvey Awards. And then in that year, Valiant announced several new partnerships with digital distributors, including Vision Books, to distribute a form of animated Valiant comic books for digital devices that I haven't seen. I don't know if you hmm. have, Chris. But, no, sure haven't. Uh, 2016 debuted a four-issue miniseries by Harbinger character Faith, titled Faith, created by Jim Shooter and David Lapham in 1992. She's a uh, chubby superhero, and uh, it became one of only a handful of series in the past decade to reach a fifth printing. Hmm. In 2016, Valiant was nominated for 50 Harvey Awards, the most nominations for any publisher that year, including eight for Bloodshot Reborn. On January 29, 2018, it was announced that DMG Entertainment had acquired full ownership of Valiant Entertainment after already owning 57% of the company. As part of this acquisition, it was announced that Valiant's CEO, Dinesh Shemdasani, would be leaving the company. Valiant's publishing team, overseen by publisher Fred Pierce and editor-in-chief Warren Simons, remained. On March 28, 2018, it was announced that actor Vin Diesel had signed on to portray Bloodshot in the film with the same name. On that same day, it was announced that Valiant's Vice President of Marketing Communications, Hunter Gorison, had left the company, replaced by Mel Kahlo two weeks later. And uh, there's been a lot of other shuffling of staff in 2018, including the hire of comics retailer Matthew Klein as sales director to the company. But from what we can tell, they seem to be cranking out quality comics month after month, and they, uh, they do enjoy a pretty satisfied fan base. Now, maybe not a huge one, but a... Committed one, right? Loyal one, yeah. Uh, so it looks like Valiant isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And, uh, of course, having said that, I'm sure they will announce that they're closing on Monday. Oh, <laughs> we did it again. Oops. <laughs> 
Now, with Valiant out of the way, we can talk a little bit about Nintendo and some some goofs. You know, we heard about some bad business decisions by Valiant, so let's look at some bad ones by Nintendo. Yeah. Uh, we spoke earlier about the Nintendo Entertainment System launching in North America with the Rob Peripheral. That's the top-spinning toy that could be used with exactly two games that stack up in gyromite. Right. Um, though that peripheral unit did a lot to penetrate the market and initially moved a lot of units, Nintendo was well-known for dropping new tech to retail that maybe the public wasn't exactly ready for. Yeah, maybe they never would be ready for. For example, the Virtual Boy was a 32-bit console developed and manufactured by Nintendo. It debuted in North America on August 14, 1995, and was marketed as the first console capable of displaying stereoscopic 3D graphics. It was sort of a viewmaster on a tripod. You stuck your face in it and played games with a D-pad controller. The games were also all in red LCD, and prolonged use could give users headaches. Head developer Gunpei Yoko, Yokoi said, We experimented with a color LCD screen, but the users did not see depth. They just saw double. Color graphics give people the impression that a game is high-tech, but just because a game has beautiful display but does not mean that the game is fun to play. Red uses less battery, and red is easier to recognize. That is why red is used for traffic lights. Traffic lights are usually what I think about when I play video games. That's what you want to see. You want to be looking yeah. into a traffic light, yeah. Yeah, and, and you might have an argument there if any of the games were fun to play. But, That's uh, the other problem, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, Nintendo priced the Virtual Boy at a relatively high $179.95, which was considerably more than the Game Boy handheld console that came at $89.95. At the system's release, Nintendo of America projected hardware sales of 1.5 million units and software sales numbering 2.5 million by the end of the year. Four months later, they shipped 350,000. Uh, another one uh, that came out not long after that was the Power Glove. Now, though this wasn't officially a licensed product, Nintendo was not involved in the design or release of this accessory. It was designed by Abrams Gentile Entertainment, AGE, and made by Mattel in the United States. Released in 1989 and retailing for $75, it was a glove with many buttons that could be programmed to play most NES games available at the time. The programming of the glove, though, could be very complicated, and it didn't always register. Also, uh, most, including myself, failed how to see the action of games like Rad Racer were improved by manipulating the car with your hand. Like, what? why was the big deal? Especially when you had to push the buttons on your hand. Most yeah, of the that time. made it even worse. It's like, well, <laughs> I'm pressing buttons anyway. What's happening? You know? <laughs> now, two Power Glove specific games were released alongside it. We have the Super Super Glove Ball and Bad Street Brawler. Both games are far more enjoyable to play with the traditional controller. <laughs> uh, the Power Glove is central to the story of the Nintendo produced film Wiz- The Wizard, uh, 1989, directed by Todd Holland, starring Fred Savage, Bo Bridges, and Christian Slater. Despite this, it sold poorly and didn't even break one million units. Mm. And uh, it's it's bad, right? Is that what they say? It's bad. It's so bad. It's right. Yes. Yes. Uh, the Konami Laser Scope. Now, the Konami Laser Scope is a head-mounted light gun used with and licensed for the Nintendo Entertainment System. It works with any Nintendo shooting game like Duck Hunt, and it's basically a head-mounted zapper trademark. Uh, the headset also included an eyepiece with a crosshair that sits in the front of the wearer's right eye. Which, in the commercials, was pretty, pretty well sold it cool. for me. I was like, yes, <laughs> yeah. that's, the, that's the precision shooting I need on the games that I never play. But uh, instead of 
pulling a trigger, however, it's voice activated, firing a shot whenever the wearer says fire. Which, mm -hmm. as you might imagine, can get pretty annoying and repetitive for a lot of games. You'd be fire, 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 you know. Your parents uh, would kick you right out of the house. Their parents, uh, I would hate myself. And uh, to make it even worse, <laughs> their microphone didn't even work very well. So the whole thing was a bit. They had to scream it. Yeah, they like <laughs> shouted and like registered every third one. Uh, I actually didn't have that one, but I did know a guy that had it, and he was not thrilled with the results. No. Uh, then there was this is sort of a this is sort of on the fence, but it's just too good of a story to it's pass up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Philip CDI. This is now we got to start really way back in 1993. Nintendo announced it was developing a CD-based video game system with Sony that was tentatively titled the PlayStation. In 1994, Sony went their own way, and Nintendo switched to the company Philips to develop that new system. In 1995, Nintendo had sold 1 billion cartridges worldwide, and recommitted to the format by cutting Philips loose and pursuing cartridges for their new system, the Ultra 64, which would be renamed later to the Nintendo 64. Yeah, Nintendo actually screwed Sony. They uh, they had it all going in, and then they turned on them to go to yeah, Philips. And now, uh, Philips decided to capitalize on what they developed, and they released the CDI, which is essentially a computer with a CD-ROM tray, but without the functionality of a keyboard and a mouse. It was marketed as a family entertainment system and promoted its educational and self-improvement titles, as well as the ability to play music CDs over any video games. Something in their arrangement with Nintendo lingered, however, and allowed Philips to develop a couple of Legend of Zelda games, uh, also an, a Mario game, without Nintendo right. oversight. Uh, three, uh, three Zelda games were produced, that's Zelda the Wanda Gamelon, Link the Faces of Evil, and Zelda's Adventure, there was also Hotel Mario. That's right, which, uh, I, which I had forgotten, but yeah, there's footage out there in the it's world. It's garbage, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, they're all terrible platformers with uh, animated cutscenes that look like they were made by people on drugs for people on drugs. Uh, this really needs to be seen to be believed, and uh, you can see the show notes for some video footage. It's it's pretty easy to come by. Yeah, we're going to throw a couple in there, and I, I believe, Chris, that Sony may have gone to, on to do something with that PlayStation of theirs. Did you ever hear anything about that? I'm gonna have to do a little bit of research. Yeah, we're gonna have to look into that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's some, uh, some more. Everybody has any updates on that? They can uh, <laughs> let us know if they want to talk about Nintendo video games, Jim Shooter, Valiant, or anything we've talked about in this episode. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. Find us on Facebook at facebook dot com slash cosmic tmail history. Uh, we're on Twitter at Cosmic T Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Uh, you can check out our weekly writings at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, where we take a look at uh, current DC comics, and uh, they started doing retro books, and you're taking uh, you're taking part in that as well. That's right. I've done a couple of uh, Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane. I'll be doing DC Comics Presents every Thursday. And if you can't get it, if that's not enough for you, if you want to see more retro DC comics, <laughs> head on over to ChrisOnInfiniteEarth.com, where Chris reviews a different DC comic every single day of the week. And uh, lately, you have been also hitting the Silver and Bronze Age. I saw JLA there today. Oh yeah, uh, it's that. That's my wheelhouse, boy. It's he's always got a great uh, kind of rundown and. Uh, so discussion is what you like to say, and then uh, yes. at the end you do throw some ads in. I'm telling you, it's the next best thing to reading the comics. So go check it out. Chris is on infiniteearth.com. 
You can also head over to the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you can find the show notes for all the episodes, as well as a chronological listing of all of our series, uh, Cosmic Treadmill, Weird Comics History, the uh, new, newly aired or recently added uh, Young Animal Gatherum, uh, all sorts of good stuff there, uh, links, pictures, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's a place to be, and that's where you want to be if you want to listen to our shows in order but mm-hmm. boy let me tell you for an episode that was supposed to be a uh breather <laughs> sure we sure loaded it up didn't we chris Woo. uh-huh uh i think that's all we got for this week chris got anything else for him oh no we're good until next time folks i want you to keep it on the treadmill icarus essentially see ya